This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy Tuesday to you. You made it another day, my friends. And uh, man, are are we uh, ever ready for you? Locked and loaded. We've got a lot to talk about today. Could your fit, Fitbit data be used to deny you health insurance? You'd think that they would just be using it to, you know, promote better living, which they do. But once this thing is on your wrist and they can start to prove what you're doing every day, then they can start saying, looks like you sat on the couch today. So is there Busted. some sort of an incentive for wearing that? Do you get like a break on your you get, insurance? You get a little, sometimes some money back Okay, some, if you're in a health program. Some offices will supply you with the Fitbit in connection with your insurance. Right? Ah. So that comes from your work who's also dealing with your insurance and they'll look at it and like, And then they'll bring a- in nutritionists and they'll bring in all these other health experts to help coach because if they can make the pool a lot healthier, then – their, their fees go down. And they'll even incentivize. Even at BYU, they'll give you money if you'll go have a health assessment and get in a program. Uh, they've been uh, For some reason, they've been calling me like every day. <laughs> but you've got to have benefits in order to get those incentives. Yes. Hmm. Now, here's the dilemma. But once they get that foot in the door and they can start kind of incentivizing you positively, could they then turn the entire deal on you and start – Disincentive or not disincentivizing, but charging you more because you're not exercising. And what happens when Fitbit technology takes off and now they can tell what your blood sugar levels are. Even if you don't have diabetes, they can tell you're eating a lot of sugar or you have too much fat in your diet. What happens then? We'll talk to an expert on this. This is scary Hmm. because I wear either a Fitbit or um, a smartwatch because it makes me look smarter and more fit. Okay. Allegedly. And so I do it for image, but now it can be used against me. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. Have you ever used one of those devices in your car? Like we put a progressive little game cartridge thingy in there and it tracks uh, whether or not you slam on the brakes. No, no, that's crazy. Why would you ever? Well, because if you you drive uh, well, you you get a discount. How much of a discount? It's probably negligible. Well, it goes it goes down over time because uh, the the one uh, that I was using it it set some benchmarks the first year, and then the next year if you don't meet those benchmarks, then you don't get the same discount. Punitive. Right? Yeah, yeah, it kind of becomes, goes back. Yeah. But they, they're not they're not uh, raising your rates because of the way you're driving. You just don't get a discount. I know, but what's amazing, my insurance company doesn't know what I'm doing right. until I need to file something. And then we yanked them because we're like, this is a yeah. joke again. Yeah. yeah. I don't like giving them that much information. You're essentially on probation. Right. You may as well just have a breathalyzer every time you get in your car. And then the the insurance said because I was working a morning show and I'd have to get to the office at 4 o'clock and in you the were morning. Sleeping. Yeah, right. I'm driving in a hazard time of day. Any time before yeah. 5 a.m. was considered a hazard time. And so yeah. I was, we were not getting that discount because of my work schedule. Well, and you drive – in a hazardous way. I mean, I've seen you drive. Okay. Yeah. Well. When I passed you the other day, demolition derby is a way of life. Your your head was on your side window. No, no. Sleeping. Well, you got to catch the sleep when you get the chance. That's why it's a hazard. So the hazard is anytime we're on the road. 
Oh, there goes Jeff. Hmm. Well, that Solara sounds nice. Oh, wow. It's burning out. By the way, um, I'd like to thank the police officer, the municipal police officer from a city I won't name, who drove down the middle of I-15 with us today yeah. at 74 miles an hour. Oh, nice. While literally half a mile of cars were stacked up behind yeah. him. No one will pass. Five lanes wide because no one's going to pass a cop going 74. No. I'd like to thank him. Well, it's good he was going 74. Yeah. I've seen him in a 70 go like 65 just to mess with everyone. It's really fun to see um, – Maybe he was going 69. Is the speed limit 70? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he was going 69. I normally go 74. You got to know that they enjoy that. Oh, he was driving because – and then this guy in a truck, a big truck guy, gets in the outside lane ready to just fly by. He's just – he's like, what is up with all these people? Right. And then <laughs> he just stops right at the front. <laughs> so Slam you, on officer. the brakes. Won't name any names. I had a neighbor who would uh, – he was a ma- on the maintenance crew for some of the uh, police cars. And oh, so he'd have to take the car from the station to the maintenance. Yeah, you got to go. Yeah, and he would just jump on the freeway. And he said it was the greatest joy of his life to just watch everyone slam on their brakes the second <laughs> they saw him. So. <laughs> oh, that would be fun for a day. Uh, we're going to get to all this fun, folks. We'll talk Fitbits coming up, plus some other headlines. Some of which, in fact, we've also got to talk about Melania's hand slap to President Trump. People are trying to figure out what that was all about on the red on the. Red carpet walk, I guess, from their airplane mm. to. Have, haven't you ever played that game, the hand slap game, where you you know you try to move your hands before the other person can turn theirs oh, over no. and yeah, slap I yours? Have, I haven't played. Maybe that. they were playing a little bit of that. Yeah, they should have invited the Netanyahu family involved, let right. them be, get involved in that. Uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Last week, Turkish President Erdogan's armed bodyguards beat up peaceful protesters outside the Turkish embassy residence in Washington D.C. Apparently at Erdogan's direction, the State Department has since expressed its concern to the Turkish government in the strongest possible terms. And on Thursday, called on the Turkish ambassador to meet with the U.S. Undersecretary of State about the incident. Now, Turkey is responding by accusing the United States personnel of aggressively and unprofessional actions against the bodyguards. The Associated Press reports 11 people were injured in the scuffle, including an American police officer and two Secret Service agents. On the other side, Washington police say they arrested two people who live in the D.C. area, presumably protesters or pro-Erdogan demonstrators. But Erdogan's uh, traveling secretary or security team enjoys diplomatic immunity, which means none will be held accountable for clearly criminal acts. The video of this was crazy. They're just grabbing people, punching them, and... Going fight, along, but it's fine. They have diplomatic immunity. Hmm. Another news amid a national shortage of critical medicine. U.S. hospitals are hoarding vial, uh, vitals, displaying uh, delaying surgeries, and turning away patients, the New York Times reports. The medicine in short supply, solutions of sodium bicarbonate. You know what that is? Uh, soda. It's baking soda. Yeah. The simple drug is used in all sorts of treatments from chemotherapies. Uh, uh, to those for organ failures, it can help correct the pH, blood, and ease pain of stitches. It is used in open heart surgery, can help res- uh, reverse poisonings. It's kept on emergency crash carts. But however basic and life-saving the drug has been in short supply since around February, the country's two suppliers, Pfizer and 
Amphistar ran low following an issue with one of Pfizer's suppliers. The issue was undisclosed due to confidentiality agreements. Amphistar's supplies took a hit with a spike in demand from the desperate Pfizer company. You know, so the one company failed. The other company felt the hit and couldn't keep up with the the, uh, demand. Both companies told the New York Times they don't know when exactly supplies will be restored. They speculate that no earlier than June or August. So if you have any surgeries... Uh, I do. Bring bring your own, I guess? Yeah, is bring it the, your own. the same? I don't know. SpaceX billionaire Elon Musk may have his heart set on building a city on Mars, but Amazon billionaire Jeff Bezos' uh, space vision looks closer to home. He's gazing at the moon. He goes, I think we should build an, a permanent human settlement on one of the poles of the moon, Bezos wow. said in a question and answer with kids at a Seattle Museum of Flight. It's time to go back to the moon, but this time we need to stay. You know... I don't know about that. You don't think that? We, should, we shouldn't go to the moon? Well, I don't mind, I guess, going to the moon. We have a hard time in our own settlements here on Earth. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure we're ready as an, as Earthlings to go start settling the intergalactic areas. It's the moon. Yeah. We're talking Mars. It's, it's I mean, right we, there. Again, we also have trouble getting our own trash. Once they know, get a movie theater there, if they get a movie theater, I'm on board. All right. <laughs> And finally, a drone flying around Petco Park during the San Diego Padres-Arizona Diamondbacks game Sunday crashed into the stands. Ooh. Fox Sports showed the uh, video of the rogue drone moving around the Major League Baseball stadium. It eventually crashed next to a man sitting in a seat located in the upper deck. The game announcers can be heard saying that the drone appeared to be illegally flying in the ballpark. The Padres recently passed a new set of drone flying regulations to improve safety. Drone operators who endanger people or property can face a $1,000 fine in federal or local prosecution. The FAA is investigating. By the way, the Padres beat the Diamondbacks. Wow. Hey, I'm all for that. The drone thing, that's scary. That There's like four blades on those things. It's like a salad shooter. They just relax the rules so that uh, private citizens don't have to register. So Looks you, like everybody was okay. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. The, so what do you do with a drone that well, illegally lands in your lap? Boom. Take it home? I guess you just want a drone. Yeah. I get, but you still need the controller. You know what? You wouldn't you one. wouldn't you be ecstatic? I mean, it's great to catch a baseball at a game, but to catch a drone? Yeah. How many other people can say they've done that at a baseball game? Not very many. Hmm. That guy. How was the game? Well, great. I lost a finger with the drone thing, but totally worth it. <laughs> I though. got to keep the drone. You know, it's um it's really a big deal uh you can't even go to a game anymore because you're afraid you're either, people are falling off of the the higher levels of the of the concourses that now. At Wrigley in Chicago, yeah. Now, I why mean, is that happening? I think it's the beer. I really, I think a lot of people are just fell over a railing a and, fell and it, down. so you can fall, you can get hit with a ball, you can get hit with a bat, you um, you could get spat upon. And now I, a drone. I will say I've never paid so so much attention to a baseball game until I was there sitting in a baseball stadium because I'm terrified. Yeah. If you've got a good enough no, seat, you, watch. you, you don't want to get hit in the head. And, and you know, I, then you wish you brought your mitt because I always, as a kid, would take my mitt to the ball game. And then as an adult, if you bring your mitt, there's some public shaming that goes yeah, on. Yeah, and it's like, it's look not, at this guy. What's his deal? He didn't barehand it. He's not a man. That's right. Yeah. I, I, that's why I always like to sit next to a kid with a mitt. Last week, the uh, Washington Wizards and Boston Celtics, there was a fight with fans in the crowd. Yeah, that, that just got went crazy. Nuts. So it's just, yeah. The uh, Warriors last night swept the Spurs, so now they can go rest. 
LeBron James had a little tiff with uh, with one of his fans. I mean, it's a this is this is getting crazy. Yeah, this is going to be a big a big head to head. Cavaliers, let's say they win against the Warriors. It better be the Cavaliers. It better be. There'll be some pushback. If it's Boston, it'll just be kind of a quick and boring and yeah. moving on. So, <laughs> Did you hear about this hip-hop Harvard Ivy League student? I did. He did his senior uh, project, I guess, was a rap. And I'm like, so what's the big deal there? Jeff, for his senior project, did a rap. And I'd like to hear a little bit of it right now, Jeff. <laughs> do you have a do you have a, do you have a rap? Are, do you mean you in could, college? Do you have some words you could lay down for, for us? For my some. senior project, I made you know how you're supposed to make those senior demo reels, and then you send them out to all the TV stations. Yeah, yeah. You made a reel. I didn't even bother doing that. Wow. How, so did you get a job, or how'd you? No, I wasn't interested in having what? a TV news job, so what? I didn't even bother. Didn't do it. Mm. Wow. It's kind of selfish. I mean, don't you think you should share your joy, share your gifts? Well, I'm I'm flattered that, that I mean, you think that way. I'm glad you shared them with us. Kelly Clarkson is Ten in, years later. <laughs> ten years later. Kelly Clarkson is in a little bit of trouble. What'd she do? Apparently, um, she's got a curse. The Clarkson curse that everybody that sings with her hmm. ends up having problems. Have you heard about this? No. So anyway, she then went and saying the Nashville Predators are one game away from advancing to the Stanley Cup Finals, and I guess apparently she went and sang the national anthem, and then they lost. So it's her fault. Apparently. That's how it works. After she sang the anthem last week, the Predators lost their first home playoff game after winning six in a row. Was it a coincidence, or was it the Kelly Clarkson curse? Hmm. Many are saying it's the curse. People who don't like Kelly Clarkson. Yeah, I love her songs. She's going to The Voice. Why? Be- I don't know, because they're <laughs> reviving American Idol on ABC. Okay. And so people are like, oh, so which, why wouldn't she go there? Well, because she's going to go she's work gonna for go the, go voice. the Voice. Yeah, I so like her music These are a lot. things that don't exactly matter. These are the things, interestingly, that um, do matter to a few people. <sighs> and, I mean, it matters to the Predators. Does it? But um, maybe, maybe it was a lack of defense. Maybe that usually. See, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> see, there so you go. Somebody's really mad about Kelly. You got to love her music. You know, she's she's she kind of screams and and yet it's beautiful. So, oh, it's so good, folks. Up next, we're going to be talking Fitbits. Everybody, you know, you're starting to get them. You need them. Then you can count your steps. But eventually, will people be counting all this information against you when it comes to your health insurance? premiums. Stick with us. Interesting uh, insight up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer. You know, our producer, uh, Palakiko, he, uh, little Kiko, we call him. Little Kiko uh, just got a new Fitbit, and um, he, yeah, he wears it around, and he's kind of bragging about how many steps he's taking every day. And we all joke about it. We all wear, we all have some device that we use to track our health. But um, 
You know, the cool thing about his Fitbit is it tracks resting heart rate, how many calories he's burning, obviously, how many, even the quality of his sleep. But should his Fitbit data be used to uh, deny him health care insurance? And could that day ever come? I mean, it seems like right now we use this data to improve our health, not necessarily prevent people from getting Healthcare, or you know, jacking up their prices. So, here to speak with us today is Dr. Andy Boyd. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical and Health Information Sciences at the University of Illinois in at Chicago, and uh, he's he's got, I think, a lot of awesome insight to help us with this discussion. Dr. Boyd, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me on the show. This is great um, topic. I think there's such a rage and so so much excitement about these these devices to help us gather the information. But one of the points you're making in this article, could your Fitbit data be used to deny you health insurance, is some of the data may eventually be used against you. Yes, that is correct. First of all, let me state under the current law as passed in the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, pre-existing conditions or using your illnesses to have you pay more insurance or not have you pay, be eligible for insurance is illegal. However, the Republicans have tried to repeal the act several dozen times, and now we have a Republican president. And even with the Republican plan, there was a large discussion about can the insurance companies use pre-existing conditions, your health status, to adjust your insurance rate? Oh, boy. And the question is, if they're allowed to do that, what can they use? Seven years ago, we didn't have Fitbit data. We didn't have all of this wonderful tracking of how well you sleep, how many steps you take. All of this technology was much more expensive. It wasn't widespread consumer. And so if the pre-existing condition clause is passed uh, or is repealed, is this data going to be used by your insurance company? I mean, well, it would be very tempting at the oh, low cost. No, absolutely. Well, and what scares me is who's pushing more and more data collection aren't even necessarily the insurance companies, it doesn't sound like, but just data companies like Qualcomm. Qualcomm is interested. They have been interested for a number of years. The data itself and how we use the data is one of the things, as a public, we need to decide. If Qualcomm is interested in improving the lives of their customers, improving wellness, improving overall physical activity, we should encourage them. We should applaud them. Some of the Fitbit data and some of the um, tracking devices could have wonderful implications. Imagine someone after a hip surgery who is given a tracking device just to make sure that they keep walking after Mm. hip surgery to make sure their physical therapy and that their recovery is well. Maybe using this information and you see a slow decrease in the number of steps someone's taking every day after surgery is an early indication of an infection where you have to get them back to the doctor and you want to save them all those We call it morbidity and mortality, but we want good things to happen. So I think with the fitness tracker data, there's lots and lots of wonderful things used in the right place, used appropriately, that we can improve lives. So there's Qualcomm, uh, Fitbit, all the other trackers, figuring out exactly how to use these 
appropriately in the clinical care is something we need to figure out. I love it. No, and don't you think that? I mean, that's cutting edge care, right? That's yeah. and in in the in the purest sense, that seems incredibly healthy. On the show recently, too, we've had other experts come on and talk about what's happening to a lot of our click data and a lot of our information that's being gathered about us through advertisers and the profiles that are being created on us. Boy, what happens when they start adding into our profiles our health data, our fitness data? Besides recommending what type of activities or if your fitness tracker is tied to your search history, you might get a promotional advertisement for a 5K or a marathon. You also, based on the advertising history, there are different aspects. Maybe they find that you tend to go to a certain, um, with GPS or geolocation or Wi-Fi ability, you could say, hey, you're going to this area of town. Maybe a restaurant next door to the one you usually visit will give you an ad. So, um, again, how we use this, how we make money, these are things that this is a new area. We haven't figured these things out. We know mobile search ads. People have figured out how to monetize that. Yeah. But the health data, the the activity data and how to integrate that. I mean, we haven't gotten to the point yet where your Fitbit data shows you had two nights of bad sleep and all of a sudden you have ads for insomnia medication over the counter. Oh, brother. (laughs) Can you imagine that? But it'll happen. No, that'll, I mean, don't you think, I mean, at at some point it's, it's going to happen once they have the data and the data is, we're finding out, becoming so much more valuable then even, you know, I mean, because you can sell the data for such a premium, that might even be more valuable to some of these companies like Fitbit than even their own consumers buying the the product. Well, uh, look at Facebook. They give their product away for free, and they find that the eyeballs of their users is more valuable than charging for their software. If we do end up having a case where the activity trackers in general are given away for free or, for example, the Qualcomm um, United Healthcare, they were willing to pay you up to $1,500 in health savings account um, money to have you wear the Fitbit and try to reach activity goals. Wow. So you got a free Fitbit plus money in order to try to be healthy and their primary purpose of that was not necess- was to increase your number of steps decrease your overall cost for health insurance but again what are they going to do with the data on the back end side after they've collected all of this can they turn around and think the other way now that we have the risk profiles of individuals meaning are you a high risk are you going to cost us lots of information or low risk how long do they need to have your footbit data mm, boy that's it's a lot of interesting questions andrew talk about the um talk about what really what's available so far in in the use of this technology because i know that their goal would be to get to a point where they can use these devices to actually start uh, diagnosing or you know be able to start creating algorithms and understanding who fits what criteria to to then be more proactive in healthcare what actually exists today what exists today 
let me give, there are numerous different Fitbit datas uh, or activity trackers. So I, we don't have enough time to go over every them, single yeah. manufacturer. So right now, the common Fitbit that is issued out is a 3D gyroscope. So they keep track of what direction and how much movement. But the only thing they actually translate or transmit to them is the number of steps they think you've taken and your heart rate. Hmm. So even with those two data points, people are like, oh, it's just the number of steps, it's heart rate, it's not really that big of a deal. One of the things people don't realize about heart rate is your overall stability or instability of heart rate can be a surrogate about how healthy you are. People don't have a flat heart rate of like 60 beats per minute every right. single day of their life. It goes up a little bit, you get excited, it goes down a little bit, you... Catch a cold. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so it's bouncing around. And one of the interesting things that they haven't used Fitbits for, but they've used other heart rate um, measures for is how variable or how much does your heart rate bounce around and how does that one measure relate to your overall illness profile. So they don't need to know that you have cancer or diabetes or obesity. If your heart rate is flat as a tabletop, then you have lots of other things going on around and you're sick. So even with the number of steps you take and just heart rate that we're currently measuring, is anyone going to make a clinical decision saying you're really sick and you need to do something? Um, no. Can an insurance company or other people use this information to say, you know what, based on our understanding of physiology, you're likely to be a higher risk? Yes. Mm. So, again, it's just limited data. How many steps? What's your heart rate? After that, they try to t figure out how much sleep you have or how does sleep relate. I mean, again, disturbances in sleep. Yeah. Depression and sleep are correlated. Do they have a specific sleep profile that would relate to depression? And could you help engage individuals who are depressed before they have a full-blown depressive episode? Maybe. Boy. If not, then will the insurance companies use it to say, ooh, you have depression, which will increase your overall risk of illness, and we're going to increase your rates. Yeah. So the information by itself is not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It's how the companies use it. No, I think and that's I, I, a challenge. Yeah, exactly. And we'll we'll uh, we'll take a break in a bit and come back and talk about how they use it. Before we go to break, one of the things that you brought up in your article is, I mean, where this goes in the future is, I mean, your article it's it's so great at talking about the fact that. It also can eventually maybe start analyzing voice patterns, speech patterns to pick up mm -hmm. neurological disorders. It could um, – even eye tracking software could measure cognitive understanding. I mean there's a lot of – there's a, I just was in the hospital with a gallbladder problem. But I'm sitting there thinking, boy, uh, if, if, I, if they could leave and somehow um, – just have a test that I could take on an app and the Fitbit could send me the message that I need to go take this thing on the uh, – just the communication ability would be, I think, impressive. But you were also talking about a, a – um, a, not an – what's it called? Like a 
a contest or that Qualcomm is putting together a competition for uh, innovators, developers to create other programs or products. Do you remember um, mentioning that in your article? Talk about that competition they put together. So if your audience is familiar with the original Star Trek, the tricorder, the idea that a little handheld device could diagnose you without the presence of a doctor or a doctor with a handheld device could um, diagnose even better. And the reason they did this in Star Trek was you're on a ship in the middle, millions and millions of miles away, you're not going to have all the expert medical care on the ship with you. So the Qualcomm Prize was a competition where they wanted pe- they wanted companies and innovators, just like they had the X Prize for their first uh, private spaceship that could go up into space and back down twice within 24 hours, they had an X prize for the tricorder. So they have two finalists now that can diagnose, the challenge was 12 clinical diagnoses that the device can measure, as well as the 13th, the absence of disease. And sometime this quarter, before the end of the summer, they're supposed to announce which one of the two finalists actually were able to build a device that we're not talking about diagnosing the hundreds of thousands of diseases and illness. But the question is, how can you diagnose the um, presence of certain common diseases with just a handheld device? Is it heart rate? Is it stats? Is it temperature? Is it... Respiratory rate. Amazing. I don't know what they have not revealed who the two finalists are, but yeah. there was a just like with the, I believe it was um, Virgin uh, Galactic. Of course, uh, they're involved. The ones who uh, were able to successfully launch the um, um, plane up twice in 24 yeah. hours. The question is, who is going? To, is it going to be Qualcomm? Is it going to be another group of innovators who? are able to take just a handheld device with a couple of sensors or even without sensors and be able to diagnose. So this is, it was aspirational, but the idea behind this was to get lots of people excited, get innovators to say, ooh, let's go after this really big prize. And obviously they have two people that they're trying, or two companies, uh, probably teams of individuals. These projects are large enough where it's not just one person. How do they, which one are they going to announce? And I look forward to the announcement. I have not seen the announcement come across. Um, The deadline keeps changing. So what I'm assuming is they're just trying to uh, refine the expectations or figure it out. Maybe it's a tie. I don't know. Well, and then imagine Uh, that you have the device that you could also just keep uploading new data, new information, new diagnoses. Then all of a sudden the school nurse could afford maybe a, a device like this or the school district could afford it. And um, boy, then, I mean, you again, you don't have to diagnose everything, but uh, if we could diagnose, I don't know, a common cold or a, uh, I mean, other issues, eating issues, uh, you know, lack of healthy eating styles or whatever. I mean, just giving us more information. But we'll take a break, come back, speak more with Dr. Andrew Boyd. The problem won't be maybe the ability to do all of this. The problem is going to be how do we lead it? How do we manage it? What policies do we make? We'll come back, talk policy and how we make sure that uh, 
our data is protected and that it's not used punitively against us. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, healthier, happier lives. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. Do you have a Fitbit or a smartwatch that is tracking your health? Well, if so, you got to be listening up. Joining us is Dr. Andy Boyd. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical and Health and Information Sciences at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And uh, before working at the university, he came to the industry working on electric health records, which we've heard about for years. Boy, wouldn't it be great if we could connect all of our health records Maybe those records could be, uh, you know, placed on a chip, on a card. Some would even love it inserted into you, placed on a band on your wrist. Or how about just backed up on your Fitbit eventually um, and have all of this information accessible the minute you walk into a hospital? Wouldn't that be powerful? Well, Andy Boyd is here, Dr. Andy Boyd, and he's, uh, he's the author of an article, Could Your Fitbit Data Be Used to Deny You Health Insurance? Dr. Boyd, we've talked about all the benefits of uh, of this technology, but then I wonder, boy, how do we get it through the political world without it, you know, taking an uglier turn? Well, when we consider health insurance, health insurance is usually considered it's a heavily regulated industry in every state at a national level, at the state level. And there are certain things that as a society, we have said it's not fair to price insurance based on certain factors. There's, for example, there was a, your genomic data, what you're born with. There was a national law called GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. Society had decided, hey, you're born with your genes, you get it from your parents, this isn't something you can change. Pricing your health insurance based on what your mom and dad gave you isn't fair. Hmm. So on a national level, when that was passed uh, about seven to ten years ago, we said, you know what, as a society, we have decided the way you were born trying to price your health insurance, it's not really fair, which makes sense. The question with health data and tracking data is how do... What does society think? I mean, obviously, if someone is healthy, they're acting um, appropriately, they're walking 10,000 steps, they're exercising, they're eating healthy, they're not doing all the behavioral aspects that actually lead to many of the health diseases we currently have, we want to reward them. But how do you reward people who are making good, healthy choices without penalizing people who either have were born genetically from their parents or they're just inherit they have a higher risk of heart disease versus how do you make it where with health insurance if you are too high risk previously the insurance company could deny you health coverage so what what happened before was listen you're really sick you really need to see the doctor but you, ha- you don't have a way to actually get the health insurance to go see the doctor. So how we decide these decisions, 
exactly where we fall, these are conversations we should be having. I mean, are people like, oh, just share the Fitbit data with everyone? We'll see what we come up with. And um, um, I like the free devices. Maybe I get a free ice cream cone for every 100,000 steps I take. I mean, again, I, these are things people need to think about. But we need to talk about the challenge. Yeah. I mean, and we, it doesn't seem like we – it's almost like we defer these conversations to our elected officials in a way. And like even how the Congress just uh, – the GOP Congress uh, just passed kind of the repeal of Obamacare. You – again, it, it, a lot of people didn't read it as the, the way the Democrats did it. I don't even remember ever having this discussion about the genes shouldn't be the driver of how you pay for your insurance. I, I mean, I love that idea. I, I don't even remember that conversation seven years ago. So in, and in a way, it's almost like a lot of people just don't care. You know what I mean? They, they just they, – they're, they're not – they don't care, I, I mean, at this point of, about it. You are correct. One of the interesting things that the field itself is maturing, usually with new technologies, you have the, real, the people who love the technologies. They're alpha users. They're the ones who go out and buy the next best phone. Yeah, the early adopter, fit. yeah. The early adopters, thank you. You have those individuals, and they will go out and buy the most expensive, the fanciest device and they tend to be less concerned about their privacy and the data implications than everyone else in the society. If you look at what's happened over the last year or so, many of these activity trackers have either gone out of business, they've been purchased, or their overall sales are starting to level off or decline. So they can't be a business just living off of early adopters. So you're right. Right now, many of the early adopters, they don't have the same concerns that everyone else right. has. And so as we're moving beyond the early adopters, as we're seeing partnership with insurance companies, as we're seeing partnership with employers, these are questions that we need to be having. It's are there legal agreements in place about we can't use the data for this information? How do you enforce them? All these other wonderful challenges. But again, once you move beyond the early adopters and early technologists, how are we actually going to use the data? Because yeah. again, the, if you're in a hospital, if you're at an academic health center, your job is to try to make everyone's lives better. You're trying to improve the overall outcome for lower costs, better outcomes. But who's driving it? If we're all partnering with the insurance companies, the insurance companies want you healthy too, but they also have to return a profit to your shareholders. Right. So how do you balance these competing interests and how are people going to use the data? I've even had just a, a friend of mine that's a dermatologist, has a, a local office here in Utah, 
And I don't know, maybe has 30 employees, 20 employees. He bought everybody, every one of his employees a Fitbit. He actually bought mm-hmm. me one because he, think, yeah. he thought I needed it. And okay. um, no, he bought me, he bought smartphones yeah. or smartwatches. And um, he bought them for everybody. And he did it really as a gesture, like you're talking yeah. about, wanting to promote health and everything. But then um, we've even had conversations about the fact that sometimes you, you even have to be careful how you, how you, push challenges like, hey, let's have a contest and everybody has to show their Fitbit data to prove how many steps you've taken and whoever's mm-hmm. taken them. I mean, you you have to, there's kind of an ethics side to this too, right? I mean, this is personal information, personal data. And again, it just, it, there's some nuance to it. There is nuance. And obviously with a small dermatology office with 20 people, he has a personal relationship with each person. Right. And if he gave them the device, the person would then be sharing the data with the activity tracker company or the smart watch right. manufacturer. He is not going to sit there and say, you know what, <laughs> I can only employ 18 of you. I'm going to yeah. use this Fitbit tracker in order to get rid of two of you. Stacy, you got to walk more. Yeah, you can't, yeah. You can't be punitive. Well, yeah. So the point, though, is when you're dealing with 10,000 people, when you're dealing with thousands of people or millions of people with this activity tracker and you have to decide who are out of a million people, who are the thousand people you're going to not enroll next year in your insurance program because you're losing money on them, Fitbit data or activity tracker data would be a way to mm-hmm. say, hey, you're at the bottom one percent or fraction of a percent of all insurance, you're a bad risk. We don't need to insure you. So, Andy, so, where where you keep saying we need to have these conversations? Um, I guess one way to do it is like writing the article that you did yeah. that gets everybody asking. But is this is are these the conversations that biomedical and health information scientists are talking about? Are they bringing these things up? Are they where do these conversations take place that matter? There are a number of different venues. Within the field of biomedical and health informatics, there is a whole area of ethics and legal implications. So I have published a few articles. There are people who dedicate their whole lives to the ethical and legal implications of electronic health data. There are a number of different centers who have dedicated to this. We have, besides publishing the article and talking on a radio show like yourself, the other ones are, as you see, policy that comes up from national organizations, for example, the repeal of Obamacare. Seven years ago, when people were able to change your insurance rates, we didn't have Fitbit data. So as we work with or collaborate with individuals who are pushing the edge of the technology, there are faculty members, there are researchers who sit there and say, ooh, are there other ways we could use this? And so you're right. We don't have a huge public relations media campaign saying the end of the world, uh, be careful of your data. But there are a number of venues. There's a number of challenges. Um, And again, the article is one way. There are Again, this is just having these conversations or at least saying, hey, if this is something you're worried about, great. If you have more important things that consumers and people are are individually worried about, that's fine. I mean, when you consider – we consider name, address, phone number – 
protected information for most individuals. Just you can't go out willy-nilly and pick it all up. But most people will give it away for a free T-shirt. So, again, <laughs> what people decide their information is worth versus um, – Yeah. And we want the consumers to decide. But – they just need to know ahead of time how the stuff could be used. I agree. I agree. And be aware and 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 know that, I mean, there's there's agreements you can make. You don't have to always send all of the data back to these companies. Um, just uh, kind of buyer beware and get involved and start thinking about it. Don't just assume your data isn't being aggregated and used and start to notice what your health companies are in, how they're incentivizing you or your, your own company. Are they incentivizing you to live health programs and plans? Are they gathering more data on you? Just be careful. Just pay attention to it. It's, by the way, very beneficial, right? It's your health. We'd love to make sure we live optimal health and simultaneously not get so deep in the data stream that we can't get out of it. We will take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to be talking about 14 uh, keys to healthier relationships. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. You know, as we are on the show, we're always trying to give you more and more ideas to live healthier, happier lives the Fitbit is one way. Another one is there's signs of healthy relationships. I had a client come up that wants to create an app to, 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 on your Fitbit to determine if your heart rate goes up and um, it hears certain volume in your voice, then it would start sending you cues or tools to help you communicate better. Interesting. Because it might be a sign you're arguing with your spouse. Hmm. But you have other signs, Terry, that you've been looking well, to improve your marriage. Time magazine had this uh, post, 14 signs you're in a healthy relationship. Sometimes you read these things, they're kind of gimmicky. Or is it yeah. real information? Is this useful information? So I want to run it by you. Okay, okay, okay. So a sign that you're in a healthy relationship. Yes. You speak your mind to your spouse. That's a great sign. Now, unless you're a jerk. So I would say if both of you speak your mind, you're probably in a, you're probably in a healthy relationship. What if, about the idea of no topic being off limits? That's probably a great sign. Okay. I mean, because you shouldn't have, right? In a healthy, loving relationship, everything's free game, especially your work or lack thereof. What? Your problems okay. should no, always be addressed. You're not talking like me No, no, not you. Yeah, you, okay. the general you. That was close. Yeah. Um, you have your own space. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah. I mean, I call that the restroom. Okay. The bathrooms where – but you should have a place that you feel like is yours in the home. I had a neighbor, his wife. Oh, the neighbor? Uh, she was home. Okay. She, she's a spend, you know, she's a, a homemaker, home with the kids. She decided she needed a break. She went to Disneyland with her sister. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. But we, we kind of need to – it almost now, sounds like she made that decision unilaterally. Well, she just said, I need a break. I'd like to do this. What do you yeah, think? He said, together, sure, do yeah. it. Yeah. He has um, – he likes watching NBA basketball. There you go. He has – him and some friends all get in and have tickets. So he goes and does his thing. Mm -hmm. That's great. I worry when you like take separate vacations. Right. That worries me a little bit because if it, it, sometimes if it's too easy to not be together. Right. Well, it seems really like healthy, the situation. Yeah. And that she just needed – to go. That's so it. That's he had it. the kids yeah. for You just sit there and you smile and say, babe, whatever. No problem. You go. 
You go. I love you. That's I, healthy. My son and I were camping. Yeah. My wife had a spa situation set up with her sister. Party. That's a perfect I came home early situation. so she could go take that. And then I was gone. She ate sushi, which oh. is perfect. I'm not a real like big sushi. fan of sushi. Oh, it's great. I'm enjoying my food cooked. So <laughs> she uh, she did that. Healthy. Talked, I think that's totally great healthy. Totally yeah. healthy. Look at – did you see all the notes Jeff's taken over? Yeah, there. I know. He's like, like – Really? A lot of notes. Like he's he's learning new information. He's now preparing to go on a vacation. So there's two. Okay, those are great. We'll, ha- we'll, have, we'll more have more throughout the show. As the show goes on. Signs of a healthy relationship. Good stuff. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to continue the journey. More uh, tools, information, and note-taking. Wow. On a chalkboard. Doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, sad news about the passing of Roger Moore and started a conversation that I'm not sure will ever end between my co-hosts here, Terry South, Jeffrey Simpson, now have just gone bondarific on me. Really? Quoting every show, naming everyone. See, it's funny, though, your favorite Bond person. You asked me, how can you know all that? And I said, yeah, but you've seen all those films. And you said, oh, yeah, I've seen all of them. I've seen all of them. But I haven't. I, I could not list... Five Bond movies. I'll bring you my box set that I have. You have a box set, do you? Yeah. Okay, so what's your favorite James Bond film, Terry? I think I've watched... Um, what, You Only Live Twice? For some reason, that one always just interested me, the way that he, he he's, like, assassinated within the first 30 seconds, and then he's, like, alive. There's this whole yeah. plot hmm. of how they're faking his death. And for some reason, that intrigued me, and I watched My father and I would watch the, it was the ABC movie night of the week yeah. or whatever, and it, they always just ran James Bond movies. Yeah. So we'd sit and watch them. My dad recorded them. We still have all the VHS Do you tapes remember they were all house. clean? It was cleaned up. They cleaned them up, and then I saw one that wasn't edited, and I'm like... Whoa, well, that's that guy's, a different. Bond's kind of dirty. Yeah. They always have some kind of a Thanksgiving Bond marathon, too, yep. where you can just watch all oh, of Oh, really? Them. Oh, yeah. Did um, I, It's interesting, too. I was sad. I'm like, Sir Roger Moore passes away. I can't believe it. That's sad. And Jeff's like, well, he was 89. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a good point. Like, he's old. At some point. That's old. Yeah. I mean, at but some point, Sean, we got to let these people die. Sean Connery's still alive. Is he? His his uh, film Goldfinger is probably my favorite. Well, I, I that's yeah, but it's because you like to be painted. You like body paint. Hmm. Anywho, we probably shouldn't yeah. not go there. Uh, remember when he came in all green? Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, all over the top. For not, yeah, not quite gold. Yeah. Okay, what about favorite Roger Moore James Bond movie? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know any. I don't know any names. See, I'll, 
I watch them all. I mean, I have the box set, so I'll just look at it and go, well, let's like, do this one. But I there's like the one that just jumps out. I like the one where he he kind of sails off into the sunset right. with the Bond girl. I like that one. Okay. Well, hey, if, whichever way you like it. I mean, it seems like in the end, I, I, my favorites were the ones where he gets to just like go on a trip with the Bond girl at the end. That's right. every single one of them. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. <laughs> See, so well, I like those. You can watch Thunderball and then watch the same story almost and never say never again and kind of yeah. see how, yeah, see how again. Roger Moore okay. and then Sean Connery right. play kind All of right. that same we're, we're gonna move on. script with a little bit of change. Because here and there. this is, again, you guys you guys will go Bond all day. Well, I'll just say that my favorite Roger Moore James Bond film was The Spy Who Loved Me. Again, if you've got a mm. great Bond villain, it's a great Bond movie. Yeah. And this one has. Jaws, the guy with the yeah. metal teeth. Oh, that guy was freaky. Yeah. Then he shows up in Moonraker. Uh, which again, but I, then he's a good guy by that point, well, right? He's a bad guy. Then okay. he kind of changes, has yep. a turn of heart. We're going to move on. on. But then there's space stations and space uh, shuttles before the space shuttle was really out. It's I thought kind of you guys just like. I thought you liked superheroes. The man with the golden gun is cool. There's okay. a there's a stunt in there where they flip a car over a canal. Here's that's a, crazy. Well, because Sauron Sauron was in that right yeah. from you, Lord of the Rings. You'll hear more of this talk on um, screen cleaning on Friday. You guys can carry this conversation on, on screen cleaning. Doesn't that kind of go against the whole premise of the show? This show? No screen cleaning. I don't I don't know what the premise of screen cleaning is. <laughs> You don't even know what the name of it is half the time. It's called screen cleaning. Yeah, it's a great show. It's it's clean screens. It's the it's the final hour of the week of this show. You've got the emphasis in the wrong place. Screen cleaning. It's like spring cleaning or spring. Well, now I just oh, making exactly. me second guess myself. Well, okay, so you're good. We're all good. Just tune in. Branding. It's important. Just tune in on Fridays. Uh, 11 Eastern Time, 9 Mountain Time, and you can you can listen to the joys of screen cleaning. By the way, I don't know if I should be watching this music video. Okay, yeah, turn that off. Yeah, they're all... Um, we've got a lot to talk about, too. We, in a bit, we're going to talk about uh, how poverty... Is it possible that being poor changes your brain? Well, we have researchers that will be joining us that say, yeah. Yeah, it does. It impacts your decision-making because poverty causes a lot of stress. And when you have a lot of stress, you don't get into the executive functioning areas of your brain as much, which help, which tends to make – you tend to make worse decisions. So they're going to show how they are actually charting that you can train and teach people to make better decisions – and uh, and really pull people out of poverty. It's a pretty powerful. It's a pretty powerful lesson, I think, for all of us, uh, which also might help us maybe judge people less that are stuck in poverty, that are troubled by poverty, and um, and really all of us. We've got to figure out how to how to eliminate it, and that's the way we do it. One way, starting with how we use our brains. So we'll get to that coming up. Plus, of course, some headlines. We have some interesting um, news from the animal kingdom. Uh, yeah, because, you know, animals running amok, bears honking horns, geese attacking. Plus, we'll get to a uh, – we'll get – we'll fill you in on a, a little pizza caper coming up. That as well. So um, 
let's first get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? On Monday, the Supreme Court ruled that gerrymandering of two North Carolina congressional district maps was done on racial grounds to yield a Republican advantage and was thus unconstitutional. The court ruled 8 to nothing to strike down the District 1 map, 5 to 3 to struck down the District 12 map in North Carolina. Justices Samuel Alito, Chief Justice John Roberts, and Justice Anthony Kennedy dissented from the latter ruling, CNN reports. Clarence Thomas joined the court's liberals on District 12, while Neil Gorsuch did not participate because the case was argued before he was confirmed to the court. Republicans have been accused of drawing districts to illegally concentrate black voters who are typically liberal and consequently making the surrounding districts more conservative. This is all from USA Today. So the Supreme Court made that decision. Mm. Two Atlanta-area middle school teachers have been dismissed uh, of their duties after an eighth grader with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder received the most likely to not pay attention award after earlier this week at a at a school assembly. Nicole Edwards' 14-year-old daughter received the award as part of the Spirit Week activities at Memorial Middle School uh, located 25 miles east of Atlanta. The, the public school district superintendent, Richard Autry, was subsequently notified by the uh, Notified by the uh, the parent, the teachers who handed out the award will not be back at the school. Uh, they're not going to be uh, employed by the school district. They, uh, the, the, the mom said her goal was to make sure that this horrible event never happens to another kid. As a parent, it's my job to protect my child from being humiliated and bullied, especially when the bully is her teacher. The most likely not to pay attention award for a kid with ADHD. Hmm. Not a good move by Not those teachers. Not a good move. And finally, some sad news. Zack Snyder, director of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, in the upcoming Justice League movie, tells The Hollywood Reporter he is stepping away from the Justice League uh, movie, uh, which is in post-production in order to deal with the sudden death of his daughter. Oh, stepping no. in to shepherd the movie, though, is uh, in the, through the post and shooting some more scenes is actually a man by the name of Joss Whedon, who did the Avengers movies. Okay. Right. And Buffy so, the Vampire Slayer. And Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So there was some concern. Uh, Zack Snyder's daughter committed suicide. She was 20-something years old recently, and they've been trying to work their way through it. He thought he could work, help him work through that by diving into yeah, his work. Yeah, getting into work. But... Distracting himself, but his, his, his family needs him, his kids need him. He needs to put his focus there. Then, then you know, there's concern about the movie. Yeah, who well, cares? What's going to happen Let's to the movie? Take care he of this He brings guy. in the guy. Yeah. That made that made the Avengers what it was. That's cool. So he's gonna and that's sh- cool that the guy's stepping in, able to pick it up for him. Right. He'll step in and sometimes and, and you just need a hand. It'll be good. It's good. So family's taken care of. Movies <sighs> taken care of. No Life worries. still happens, doesn't it? Well, and Joss Whedon isn't he going to be doing the uh, the Batgirl movie? Yes. So that makes sense that they would involve him in this project. Speaking of Batgirl movies, uh, Pizza Hut Worker. See, it doesn't really tie in that way, Matt. But good job. <laughs> a Pizza Hut Worker pepper sprayed a coworker in a dispute over some toppings. After an argument sparked by how pepperoni and cheese were placed on the pizza, a Pizza Hut supervisor spray, pepper sprayed a coworker, according to a police report. So... As you know, they're fighting over. That's not how you put the peps. You don't put the pepperoni that way. And it started a fight. Sandy Springs police have issued a warrant for the arrest of Anderson Ramon Lewis for disorderly conduct. Conduct. The pepper spray was discharged in the direction of the female victim's face, but police said it didn't seriously harm her as it only landed on her arm. Well, you know, pepper spray on the arm can hurt too. 
I guess. Uh, witnesses told police that two employees had a verbal altercation that ended with Lewis using pepper spray. Police said witnesses told them that Lewis initially confronted the victim about the placement of pizza ingredients before telling her that she needed to go home or get fired. She responded by telling Lewis that he wasn't her manager. Bada boom, bada bing. It got ugly. Police said the general manager attempted to separate the two uh, and Lewis ne- and told Lewis he needed to leave. Lewis left but came back and continued to provoke the victim. That's when Lewis discharged the pepper spray at the victim and in front of the general manager and it got ugly. Okay, Before Lewis left the store again, he wrote his address on a paper napkin, slammed it down on the counter and said if the victim wanted a fight, that's where she could find him. Wow. He then threw trays of pizza dough uh, and pizza and dough on the floor before leaving. It's interesting how he could have so much respect for the process and then just throw everything all over the floor. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That, by the way, all was not lost because that was where they invented a new pizza that day called the extra peppery pepperoni. Hmm. It's uh, it, uh, a lot of people don't kind of like burns it. the tongue a little bit. Yeah. Luckily, he wasn't using the anchovy spray. You know, we actually have audio from the oh, scene, no. from the video, like the security video. Oh, you got security. So video. the audio is not the best. It's not, uh, but you know, it's but because it's pulled from the the yeah. video. Here so it is. This is this is uh, TV radio. Yeah. No, no, no! You're placing those peps all wrong. Whatever. How many times have we talked about this? If you can't respect the art of pep placement, then maybe you should just go home. You're not the boss of me, Andy. Hey, 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 what is going on in here? Do you two want to be separated? Andy started it. Well, she wasn't following pep placement protocol. You're supposed to place in a circular motion, not just throw the peps on the pizza willy-nilly. Andy, I know you're passionate about pizza, but this is the third time we've had this conversation. If you want to make it in this business, you've got to lead with compassion. Now, I think you better call it a day and go home. See, I told you you were out of line. Oh, I see. But once I spray you with this bell pepper spray, you won't see. Ah, it's all over my arm. Just consider yourself lucky I didn't use the anchovy spray. Now, if you want to fight, here's my address. Just don't come after 8 o'clock at night because my mom likes to turn in early. Hmm. Two lives with his mom. Yeah. Boy, I didn't know that they have a little metal ball in the in the pepper spray can. Well, it sounded like it was bell pepper spray. Yeah, that said. would be good. That would be great. I think they use it on the pizzas when they run out of the bell peppers. It sounds like the whole management team, they're about 18. That one manager seems a little spitty. Yeah. I'm not he, sure that I I don't think I want pizza anymore. That, that's why we left the name of the pizza place out to yeah. protect them and also so that you would never know. Boy, well, okay, that's good audio. I think I'd fire all of them, even that manager. <laughs> I'd fire. Every last one of them. I don't know any teenagers that are that passionate about their pizza job. No, really. And I didn't know that there was a certain way that you have to – I didn't know. I did not know of the circular motion that you've got to put the peps on. And I didn't know pep was short for pepperoni. It's, it's uh, biz lingo. Yeah. Boy. Never worked in the pizza biz. Just, just 
probably supported three of them. Made a lot of people rich. Uh, We're going to take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to talk about poverty. Does it change your brain? Think about it. If you were living in poverty, do you think it would alter how your brain works over time? Well, we have some research that says it does. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. A new study by Empath uh, examines how poverty really affects the brain. Poverty, uh, people in poverty tend to get stuck in vicious cycles where stress leads to bad decision-making, compounding other problems in their life and more stress in their life, and, uh, and on goes the cycle, right? So here to examine with us the thought process of someone suffering from poverty is Dr. Elizabeth Babcock, president and CEO of Empath. We are gl- uh, grateful to have you here, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. This, I think, is pretty groundbreaking because we now know more and more that there's part of our brain, that prefrontal cortex, the executive functioning part of our brain. I guess it's right behind the uh, our forehead, right? And it's But it helps us make better decisions, kind of think things through, be less reactive. But according to your research, I guess what we're finding out is the constant stress of poverty makes it is it harder to get to that area or what happens well the stresses of poverty uh, affect us in ways that um, make it harder for us to think about uh, choices and options when we're dealing with a problem make us harder to think uh, to come up with a plan B for how to get out of the problem it makes it harder for us to sort of think about the implications of what we're doing right now for our future um, makes it harder for us to think about our priorities and to organize our lives. Um, and it makes it harder for us to sort of stay calm and not overreact when we're in a challenging situation. Hmm. And you, what you did, though, is you, I guess you did, you did uh, were they fMRIs? What were they on the brain? Well, we certainly didn't. My organization actually takes this science and applies it to find new ways to help people move out of poverty. So we're not the researchers who've looked at the brain itself and the way the brain works. What we've looked at is what scientists are telling us about the way the brain works on stress. And then we've taken that and done research on how to use that science to create stronger programs and better tools for helping people who are living under stress. And the data is its pretty mind-blowing. I mean, you've been able to improve uh, this executive functioning and the ability to get into that part of the brain and, and in, I guess, in turn, make better plans, make you know, more adjustments to be able to get out of these situations. Talk about the data and what, what you've been able to do in some of your trials. Well, we've uh, we've come up with new ways of what we call mentoring or coaching um, people who are living under the stresses of poverty or maybe violence or trauma, um, and uh, in these coaching processes have been able to help people strengthen their own planning and decision-making and, and set their own goals in a more powerful way and follow through to achieve them. 
And at the same time, when those coaching practices are repeated over and over again over time, then what happens is we actually see the brain itself responding, and um, we think we're seeing uh, real changes in the way that the brain functions, uh, especially in, in children. So um, there's a sort of a two two fur here that happens with this work. One is that um, the tools and approaches help people in real time sort of sort out and make better decisions. But then over time, if that process can be repeated, you can actually, uh, we think, start to see changes in the way the brain itself is working. Amazing. And it's... I mean, we because it's so easy for people to just not understand why some are in poverty and some aren't, and there's a ton of data out there. But to to all of a sudden think that it, it then creates stress, it creates more stressful lives, and then that impacts the brain, which impacts decision-making, which then keeps people trapped. Yeah. Um, I mean, that concept is – is it's it's tragic it's it's debilitating and to know that for for centuries this has been going on really um yeah. yours so your organization empath stands for economic mobility pathways did you initially start out just to improve the economic mobility um of of the more impoverished society Yes. I mean, our, my organization's history goes back to the early 1820s, and we've been working to try to help low-income individuals move out of poverty for that time, for that long. Um, but we have now new tools at our disposal that are just uh, wonderfully exciting in, in what the power of what they can create, because we're building these new tools out of brand new science that's only been around, you know, for a couple of decades, and new things are emerging every every year about uh, about how the brain works under stress, and we can use those to create um, different ways of working. And so I can tell you that um, when I came here to Empath um, 10 years ago, um, we had to find somebody who had moved out of poverty to give a speech at um, one of our big annual huh. events. And we claimed that that's what we did. We moved people out of poverty. And we looked for that one person that we'd actually fully moved out of poverty, and we couldn't even find one. Wow. Um, and now I can tell you that 10 years later, you know, sort of employing these techniques, the folks who undergo coaching who start out making maybe um, as little as, well, on average, $11,000 a year, um, actually get to the place that they're over three years on average with us are actually making $23 an hour or about, uh, you know, $46,000 a year. Um, uh, and also uh, folks that have no college education in that same amount of time, 80% of them are going to have a new college level or post-secondary credential. And that's, you know, uh, rates of college graduation that are four and five times higher than the community norms. So we know we're on to something really Really pretty spectacular, and 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 it, because this is so intergenerational, I mean, uh, you change one, you you change even if you just lighten the load and and through the coaching change the the child's life, you may have permanently oh removed an entire oh, yeah. family out of yeah poverty. Yeah, it's, you are you're absolutely on to what is just most heartening and exciting about this. We had a, a dad of one of our participants actually go on Facebook congratulating his daughter with the progress that she'd made. And the way he worded it on his Facebook post was, um, Loreen, you have removed the family curse. Oh. I, I, I found that to be so powerful. 
Um, and the way that we see it, of course, is especially in our impacts on children because um, we can do tests of executive functioning, of you know the organizational skills of children and their ability to control their behavior, and we can do standardized tests of children, and even while they are homeless, even while they are still in highly stressful circumstances, yeah. 88% of them will have gains in their executive functioning scores. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty amazing and really counterintuitive kind of set of results. While they're in the system. And then While they're as, still in shelter, yeah. And as they grow up, they can, I mean, imagine, I guess, if, is it over time if they keep maintaining or if they keep having new skills given to them, new practice, uh, new, um, uh, I guess, what's the name of it when with your neural pathways, just, you know, formally, stronger neural yeah, pathways, stronger neural right. pathways. Once, they, once they've done that enough, they can become the change in their own lives, being less reactive, making better skills. And by the way, still not having the money, but being able to start to stick to the other path out. Yeah. Well, what we know that's um, that's uh, really also affirming about this work is the brain science tells us that the brain itself is coachable. Um, the, the scientists call it plastic. That's that right. You actually can improve the way the brain works well into adulthood. And in fact, we think we can make improvements just for indefinitely. But children are especially plastic. It's the time in our lives where the brain itself is geared to grow. And if we can um, introduce parents with better skills, better decision-making skills, um, and the, the kids can see the parents' behavior being modeled, um, if we can work with parents and kids together, um, that we, we really even more greatly impact the children. And it happens in a couple of ways, because you've got to remember that it's stress that's causing these, you know, these uh, complications. And so when parents are making more money, whether their brains have changed or not, the um, the stress levels are lowered, and that helps right. everybody, the kids and the parents. And if the parents' behavior is changing and they're making better decisions and they're better able to control their own impulses, then the kids are seeing that modeled, and that affects them as well. So you get this great twofer. You get the coaching that's going on and the decreases of stress, and that's really where the powerful, virtuous cycles can happen. And I, I see this with my own clients, and my whole program is been basically doing a similar thing with couples where if when they don't know that the stress causes kind of the fight or flight amygdala firing which keeps them out of the prefrontal cortex when they don't when they don't know that 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 they have another choice and you start to show them that there's another choice and then they start to do it enough that they create that pathway um, I guess the powerful thing is it's 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 just a little information, but it's information that finally can solve these systemic problems in their lives. Yes, um, you know you're absolutely right. Education is power, and um, what we know from various uh, behavioral psychology um, literature is that just being aware of these effects can impact how people then think about themselves, and it can decrease the, the self-blaming, which adds to the stress, and people can say, oh my gosh, um, no wonder why my head feels frozen. It's because I'm trying to do too much at once, yeah. or because I'm, I'm dealing with too much, and that in and of itself can lower the tension um, and help make people be in a place that they can, they can improve uh, their own lives, their decisions, their goals, 
uh, and their achievement of goals over time. Well, yeah. and I'm assuming with with the clarity also they they can better evaluate why they do what they do, why they react. I mean, some of what they might find out too is they just have anxiety. They have exactly. depression. They have ADHD. And now they can exactly. more, I guess, more clearly go start addressing more root cause issues that then yeah. can get medicated or treated or educated on. And yep. slowly they start eating better, healing, growing, and all of a sudden holding down a job is more doable, which then leads to promotion. I mean, it's, it's really power. True. It's really true. You know, we, we often say to people, getting out of poverty isn't one thing, right? It's not just your education or your health or your money and how you're managing right. your money or your your personal relationships. It's a lot of things that have to sort of get clicking in order to have a person be able to really make that move out of poverty. And what's really great about this is that our ability to make wise decisions, our ability to be able to control our impulses, to persist and follow through on goals that are hard to achieve, sort out things, multitask, all of those things are executive functioning um, skills. And if we can strengthen those, then, as you said, all sectors, parenting, our ability to work, our ability to go to school, our ability to manage our money and budget and our time and routines, all of those things are impacted in a positive way. Mm. I can't even just imagine now you can think clearly about how to make it to the next paycheck instead of maybe having to fall into crime or exactly. or alcohol and drug use to medicate. I mean, I, so and here's the thing, and I, and I really I want you to help us with this, Elizabeth, because I feel like we just don't get it, right? If you haven't lived in real poverty in an inner inner city, we we look at it like oh, you just gotta. You know, my grandpa was poor and he just picked himself up and he just Right. But it's it's one thing to say that, but a lot of this just isn't about character. It's about it's just about ability. They don't necessarily have the ability to get out of the hole they're in, they're in and they're co-creating. Yeah, well, the hole is drastically different now than it was in grandpa's time. Right. Because in grandpa's time, you could get out of high school or maybe even not even graduate from high school. Um, you could get out of high school and grandpa could go into a job that paid a family sustaining wage. And I could go out of high school and my friends could go out of high school into a job that would be, you know, a union or a manufacturing or other type of job that paid a family sustaining wage. And, you know, those jobs are not there anymore. The world has changed and we have to get education beyond high school and it has to be in the right thing. It can't be in 18th century French literature yeah, right. in order to support everything. Right. And so it's a much more complicated thing than it was before. But people really do get this, um, Matt. They do get it because, um, you know, we've all experienced what we call this bandwidth tax, this having our brains overwhelmed yeah, with yeah. too much stress. We've all experienced that. We know what it feels like. It's that coming home at the end of the day when you've had a day that's been a day, your brains are overwhelmed, and all of a sudden you have the kids, you know, wanting help with the homework and the cupcakes baked the next day and you have to pull dinner together and that's where when the wrong question comes to you can you you say talk to the hand yeah you know, because yeah you know if you make a decision at that point it's not going to be a good one you know we have to sort of decrease the buzz in order to be able to make the next decision wisely we we all know what that feels like totally. when we you know smacked into somebody's bumper yeah. and we have to figure out how to deal with that and suddenly can't find the papers in the glove box you know, it's so it's, true 
Well, and, and with with in poverty, you can't just bail yourself out by hopping in your car and running to the store late at night. Yeah. To, I mean, you may not have a store in your neighborhood. That's you may right. have to get on a bus, but it's too late and the buses are now leaving. And you yep. feel this incredible guilt because you forgot to bring home the cardboard for your daughter to make the poster. Exactly. And so, I mean... It, then, then that just, just adds more stress. Much elasticity. You're yeah. absolutely right. There are no many, not as many options for how to deal with things when you're poor, and the time and money is is tighter. And so you're right. It makes it even that much harder. You're getting the idea yeah. of how this is of what they call a pileup of stresses. It's kind of Maslow's hierarchy. It seems like where um, the base needs, if they're not being met, the transcendent needs, the higher needs, even the social and you know, transcendent needs are less relevant. So if we if we're not eating, if and that and if we're, it's hard to make ends meet at a very base level, um, then it just adds more stress, and we kind of quit climbing the ladder. It makes it much much harder. We know that the way that the brain responds to stress is um, it has a tendency to do what the scientists call tunnel. Um, we have a tendency when we're under stress to think about. The, the most pressing thing that's right in front of us and not to really be able to think about much else because we have to deal with it, you know? Mm-hmm. And when we tunnel like that, when we're thinking about that, that most important thing, um, that, and we can't focus as much on anything else, it means we can't focus as much on the other people in our lives, what's going on with them and what's motivating them. Um, we have a tendency to be consumed by, the, you know, the biggest problem at hand. Um, and that makes it harder for our interpersonal interactions, um, for us to resolve problems with other people, to leverage other resources, to think about other ways to, to deal with the problem, um, but just to, you know, try to fight it uh, ourselves head on. And, and that's where the fight or flight response comes. That's mm. where we we can get, you know, to the point we're just fighting that one problem or we're shutting down. Yeah. You know, everything gets shut down. And then, yeah, yeah. and then hopeless and abandoned yeah. and, oh, crazy. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Babcock. She is the president and CEO of Economic Mobility Pathways, or MPATH. And you can go to her, the, her website, uh, mpathways.com, mpathways.org, mpathways.org. We'll come back, continue this journey, find out where they are taking these uh, this research and this learning. I mean, I know it's in Boston. Are they going everywhere in the country now? Is there a way to get it in your community? And uh, what can we do to help out at making giving a little hope? To those that are in poverty, stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. Apparently, poverty changes the brain, creates more stress, puts you probably in, in more in your fight or flight part of your brain, less in your executive functioning, which impacts the decision making, uh, your ability to think through, through things, your tendency to tunnel and maybe uh, lose sight of the bigger picture, which leads to not necessarily better decision making. And when that happens, you probably are more likely to stay in poverty. So there's an organization in Boston, Massachusetts called Empath. Uh, empath 
Um, the website is empathways.org, and they are doing what they can to fight poverty and to help find pathways out by teaching, coaching, mentoring, um, and, and helping these people start to make better uh, decisions using their prefrontal cortex, better meaning from a higher executive functioning area instead of just the fight or flight brain. And uh, joining us is Dr. Elizabeth Babcock. She is the president and CEO of Economic Mobility Pathways, Empath, a national charitable organization dedicated to creating new pathways to economic independence for low-income women and their families. Elizabeth, thank you again for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. This is um, – I think this is powerful. And so you go in, you – and I know you're doing it in Boston. You were, you're talking about maybe getting it also to Mississippi and Seattle area. Is that right? Well, we actually are all across the country now. I think our work is in about 30 states. Great. Um, we have – and four other countries outside the United States. Um, we have uh, a wonderful uh, arm of our organization called uh, the Economic Mobility Exchange, and that is um, an, uh, a program whereby other organizations that want to pick up these brain science-informed tools and approaches can join the exchange, and together um, we share the tools and approaches with them. They decide how those tools can be best used in their own programs, and we have 65 organizations, government organizations and nonprofit organizations across the country um, using these tools and approaches, adapting them to their own communities and organizations, and then um, helping us learn altogether how um, how this works, how this coaching works hmm. in different types of settings. Wouldn't this be valuable for every child to have in school? Well, I think the schools have really been um, the earliest adopters of brain science framing for trying to help um, kids get ahead in school. Um, so, yes, definitely, we believe that this kind of awareness and, and um, understanding of the scientific basis of this work is, is, is important in schools, and it is being used in schools. I think what we're also uh, doing ourselves as an organization is seeing to it that it gets into the um, human services more broadly. Mm. So, for example, we have these coaching approaches now being used in early Head Start programs and in city um, um, multi-service agencies, in programs where um, that are helping people who are getting out of jail and in shelters and housing organizations and in community development efforts like, um, you know, big neighborhoods that are trying to rebuild and redevelop are using um, the coaching practices for residents um, who are going through those kind of changes. What a powerful model, the the mentoring, the coaching program, where if you could have not just government entities engaging the those in poverty, but members of this of the community coaching and mentoring these skills and traits like a, yeah in a community effort how powerful yes yes um, you know, we have organizations like all across the country um, that are um, basically shifting from what we used to think of case of this, a case management. You know, think about that case management where people are a case to be managed. Yeah, know? right. Um, and instead, um, helping anywhere that case management has done, there are lots. There's opportunities to create coaching instead. And what that is is, you know, instead of telling people what to do and how to get, you know, how to learn to teach their kids to read 
read or um, how to um, basically apply for a job and get a job, instead of, of doing simply that and just teaching somebody something, actually standing alongside them and helping them figure these things out for themselves, giving them information, but also giving them the tools with which to solve their own problems, set their own priorities, and help themselves move ahead. Mm. Love it. And we, I saw it in my own community recently, a big debate in Utah about moving homeless shelters and where they're going to put them and a lot of citizens fighting, not in our neighborhood kind of thing. And I, I sit there and again, I think we maybe we just we we miss what's happen, happening with real poverty in our communities. What what can we do just as citizens in our own world, in our own neighborhoods? To, to be a part of this um, and to, to make a change, make a difference? Well, as, as we said earlier, I think knowledge is power. And so becoming more aware of how poverty and stress and trauma impact us as human beings, adults and children, is a powerful thing. Because when we understand those, uh, those dynamics, we understand the behaviors of other people around us a lot more clearly. And we're less prone to think that people are unwilling to work, unmotivated, um, are, are making foolish decisions, and more able to see um, the, the ways in which we are affected by our environment and our circumstances and um, able then to do something about it. So I would say, first and foremost, everyone should become more aware of, of what this new science is telling us. And it's easy. I mean, you know, it's, it's very easy. Our website has tons of information, for example, that people can just go to and read. Um, so that's the first thing. But then the second thing I would say is for all of us to look at ways that we can go from thinking about getting out of poverty or raising a healthy child as simply, you know, one single thing and start to think about it as um, something that uh, both things are accomplished by improving the decision-making, self-regulation, problem-solving skills that we as human beings need to do anything in this life. Yeah. And um, we, can, we can do that. We can, we can basically uh, access tools and approaches that will help us do, do that better. Give us a taste of the content um, that that uh, you coach and mentor your, the people on that moves them kind of from the fight or flight life and brain to the prefrontal cortex. Well, um, what we start with, with adults or with kids, is something that we call the bridge, uh, the bridge to self-sufficiency for adults and the bridge to a brighter future for children. And what the bridge is, is it's a one single piece of paper that asks people to sort of think about their lives um, in five areas. So to basically put down on paper um, how you're doing in terms of your family stability, um, you know, how your housing and your situation with your housing, your well-being, your health and your mental health and your um, social supports, your money your career, and your education, and ask you to say, are those things where you want them to be, or are there things that you really need to improve in those areas? Now, in what that allows people to do is do something the brain on stress doesn't let you do, which is to think about more than one thing at once. It forces you to think about more than one thing at once, and so it forces you to set goals in a different way. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Um, 
in, in when we were first working without these tools and we had a family that was homeless, we would say to them, okay, what do you want to do um, while you're here in shelter? And they would say, I want to get out of shelter. I want to get into, you know, an apartment that I can afford to pay for. And then we would say, okay, fill out these forms and this is how you apply for public housing or what you can do to apply to find a, an apartment. So it's like, you know, here, fill out this thing to get a job or fill out this thing to get an apartment or, you know, whatever. Very transactional. With the bridge, what we do is this. We say, okay, you're here in shelter, um, so you're clearly homeless right now. Um, Why are you homeless? I'm homeless because I lost my job. So then we ask them about the job. Why did you lose your job? Well, I lost my job because I kept missing work. Um, why did you miss the work? Well, I missed the work because my kid is sick with asthma and I keep getting called out of work to take care of him. Um, what happened when your kid got sick with asthma um, to your money? You know, how did you handle your bills? Well, I started paying for a lot of things on credit cards because I wasn't making enough money at work. Mm. So here you can see we're asking not just one question about yeah. housing, but questions about all those areas. And what that does is that allows you to begin to see, hmm, maybe the next step shouldn't be just to fill out the forms. Maybe the next step should be to figure out how you get your kids asthma treated, because that seems to be relating to all of this stuff, right? Interesting. And that's where the intersecting problems begin to be um, something that your head can start to see. Whereas when you're just in the middle of the stressful situation and you're not using a tool or a coaching approach like that, your head doesn't see that, hmm, maybe at the heart of all of this, is the asthma. And that's something that all of us who aren't under stress think, well, that should be obvious. Totally, (laughs) right. Actually, um, when you are under stress, it isn't obvious, and how you tackle it isn't as clear. But through the process of coaching and using tools that force these different questions to be asked and processes to be followed, people start to learn that um, solving problems isn't a question of just dealing with what seems right in front of you, but it's often a question of dealing with other things as well. Love it. Well, it's powerful, and I congratulate you on your work. Um, I can't recommend more. Uh, people, go check out the website, empathways.org. Empathways.org, you'll find ways to uh, to donate if you want, but also just to get involved. You can learn more about all of their tools, their research that goes behind all of this. You can become a member there. Powerful stuff. And we appreciate Dr. Elizabeth Babcock for teaching us that it's it's not just they're lazy. It's not just they don't care. They do care. They just you get stuck and your brain is meant to get you tunneling, right? Get you digging deeper not necessarily creating the bigger picture clarity uh, if you're in survival mode. Interesting stuff. We'll take a break, come back, uh, and when we come back, we'll be talking about uh, animals taking over. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. You know... Ah, animals are the most lovable, cute little creatures on earth. Sure, you love to snuggle with your honey, but wouldn't you rather just cuddle up with a little grizzly bear? No. Okay. Police in Virginia said a 200-pound black bear accidentally locked itself inside a resident's car and then honked the horn until it was freed. 
The Roanoke County Police Department said Ryan McClanahan and his family woke up about 5 a.m. Thursday to the sound of their car horn blaring. Officer Thayer responded to the call and discovered a 200-pound black bear had managed to get to the unlocked car and locked itself inside. The baby bear found some treats inside and caused minor damage to the vehicle. Um, the police department said in the Facebook post, the officer was able to open the back door and the little guy eventually found his way out and then ran off into the woods. I think we've got audio for this one, oh, too. let's hear it. Let's hear it. I have had it. I'm going to bust out of here. Oh. I will use tragedy. It's a famous bear. Yeah. Is that Yogi? Sounded like him. Hey, boo-boo. Or is that boo-boo? That but it Yogi. sounded like he used... Uh, Strategy yeah. to get out of the car. Well, yeah, you got to use a strategy. Strategy, and um, the rule of this story, the moral is, we we lock our cars. And have you ever like had your car alarm go off, and then you had to go out to the car and click it off? Make sure you're awake and look in your car because you don't know what might be setting the alarms off. And don't leave your picnic basket in there either. Yes. By all means, do not leave your picnic basket in there. So uh, bears in Virginia. Oh, my. Uh, How about a plastic bat used to defend a son from a goose? Is that legal, do you think? Oh, yeah. If a goose attacks you in Indianapolis, should you be able to defend yourself with a plastic bat? Absolutely. I agree. But uh, apparently, no. Uh, Indianapolis man says he shouldn't have been ticketed for using a plastic bat to protect his four-year-old son from an aggressive Canadian goose. Those Canadians. Uh, James McDaniel says the goose came across the field and chased his son, so he struck it in the head with a bat. McDaniel said the goose was clearly attacking the boy, and he was doing what he could to protect him. Animal services ticketed McDaniel for animal cruelty. An incident report says witnesses reported that McDaniel hit the bird three times. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources said people are allowed to protect themselves or others from wildlife, but may only use reasonable amount of force. Oh, ah, audio from ah. Three times. That was three times. See, wouldn't it have been worse had he used his foot or his fist? Well, and apparently, I guess you're allowed to do it once. But I'm telling you, if you haven't ever had a goose attack you, you, you don't know what this guy's gone through. This is traumatic. Anytime you have a wild animal, you know, after you, scary. So would you rather have a goose attack you or a bear in your car? A goose attack me. Any day. Oh, ah. Boy, violence on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break, my friends. We'll be back continuing the journey. Stick with us, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back. Man, oh man. We got a lot going on today. Today we're talking fad diets. I, I think I've heard about every diet possible. And I'm 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 going to try something where I'm going to have somebody make my meals and I'm paying them to make my meals for me. But I found out that it's it's kind of a gluten free thing. Yeah, of course it is. But I don't need gluten free. I just need low fat. Right. And I'm not sure that uh, that turns out to be the so. Would that be somebody local? Yeah. That makes food and brings it to you. 
Not like yeah. a uh, mail order. No. My no, wife's doing one of those. Yeah. Does she like it? Um, we've done some, uh, like they'll give you like one free meal or something and yeah, whatever. Th- these... A lot of bok choy going on. Not, not really mm. a big fan. Yeah. Th- these meals look really good, but, uh, and you just get them, I guess a week at a time yep. and then just, you know, I'm excited. I'm excited. You, you sound, you sound really excited. Well, about because this. it's food, right? It's, mm. it's solid. I've just had a lot of drinks lately and I need something solid. Applesauce? Even more solid than that. Oh, wow. Yesterday, I had brown rice and mm. chicken. Hey, living large. Yeah. I would eat that. It was, great. it was excellent. Every day. I, I'm going to eat it every day. I had chicken and sweet potatoes. So there you go. Oh, I'd kill for a sweet potato fry right now. I almost killed my child over the sweet potato he would not eat. Did you, uh, did eat you, pull, out, did you pull out the pool noodle? No. Why can't, you do, why can't you do an oven-baked sweet potato fry? I bet I can. It's just I have to do everything very carefully because I don't want to have a flare-up and mm. get a flat tire. Once I get once I get a f- flat tire in my gallbladder, mm. then I got to call the maintenance truck. You're right. They put me up on that lift. Roadside assistance is yeah. expensive. It's very expensive. So um, today we're talking with Dr. Ron Hager about fad diets, and we, we're going to run by him this really awesome diet we heard about the other day, the bacon diet, where the guy eats two pounds of bacon a day and he lost 20 pounds. How did that? I mean, yeah. he, Ron always talks about how you got to eat healthy. Mm. But bacon helped this guy lose 20 pounds. I'd like to hear the argument here. So now, was it more the bacon or more of what he wasn't eating? Well, maybe mm. he was so full on two pounds of bacon. <laughs> well, it. yeah, I was going to ask, is that the only thing that he ate? Yeah. Well, but wow. seriously, what else could he have eaten that would be worse than bacon? Right. Right? I mean, like, is anything worse than bacon? I mean, it's the oh, best thing sure. on earth. Sugar. But is it? Ask Ron when he comes in. Is sugar worse than bacon? Ask him. Two pounds of sugar or two pounds of bacon? There's a question for the next segment. Which is worse, two pounds of sugar or two pounds of bacon? And if if you have to have both, you're dead. How many slices of bacon in a pound would you say? Like 12? No idea. I don't know. You know what? That's worth testing. Let's just say for the sake of argument, (laughs) it's it's 12. You got 12 thick slices. Okay, so that's... If we had a cooking segment, we that's could only a thousand calories per day. No, it's. I guess it's. It's not the calories that I'm worried about. It's probably more. I don't know. Your heart being and the arteries to your heart being occluded, and then you dying. Mm. It's kind of more that. Call but his open. calorie intake is great. Yeah, thousand, maybe that's it. No wonder he's losing twenty pounds. If that's all he's eating, but you know, if you throw some eggs next to that. And then that's just breakfast. What if he's having two pounds of breakfast? Right. We'll find out. But it's a diet. And diets, are they are they really all they're cracked up to be? We'll be speaking to the expert on that. Plus, of course, uh, we'll visit our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation, find out what is coming up on their show at the top of the hour, as well as doing a hero story as, as and also getting back to uh, some of the empty news. Just some of the information. And if we have time, we might even be able to do a few more little uh, signs that your marriage is is, yeah. is healthy or not. I don't know. Some of them might not be real. Yeah. We'll get to that. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? So last week I shared the story about the woman who stopped up after work at a gas station and get, got some nachos yeah. ended up with botulism. Yeah, a little botulism. You know, it happens. Mm-hmm. Who? I mean – 
Slim Jim, botulism, Well, the, the story has turned sad. A, the botulism outbreak linked to contaminated nacho cheese dip, but a gas station in California has killed one man, left no at least way. nine others hospitalized. San Francisco County Coroner's Office identified the dead man as Martin Galindo Laros Jr. Oh. Test confirmed the botulism toxin in the nacho cheese dip sold at the gas station. The state health agency said the agency said last week the container and the cheese dip were removed May 5th. Authorities believe the contamination posed no further risk. They declined to disclose, disclose uh. whether the gas station involved was even still open and whether authorities were examining if the contamination may have originated at the factory that actually made the dip. How far did you track yeah. this back? What's you know the, what? Uh, I would. Uh, everybody should check the nacho cheese machine. Well, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that can go See, wrong. See, this story has already made an impact on my life because I had some nacho cheese in my fridge yesterday. I threw it out. There was still like half left. And I was like, I, I can't do you're this. You're not doing it. See, you're eating healthier already. Good. Uh, Bitcoin. We've had people on the show talking about Bitcoin. It's a uh, internet. Well, they call it a, I forget the name now, but it's a, it's a currency, yeah. but it's it's virtual currency. It's not like paper money. It's right. something you trade online. It's just a coin. Sometimes frowned upon as currency of the underworld, as a fast-gaining currency in the financial world. The cryptocurrency, that's what it's called, soared past $2,000 per Bitcoin. When we talked to the guy, it was yeah. about $400 per Bitcoin. Now it's up to $2,000 well, per Bitcoin. Well, it's because all these guys are holding people hostage now saying, if you want, I'm going to release this movie if you don't give me right. Bitcoin. Investors increasingly treat it as a new gold standard in countries such as Japan and China have integrated it into their banking systems. On Monday, it traded 6% higher at uh, $2,182 per Bitcoin. Companies and governments are embracing the currency for several reasons. It's easier to transfer overseas without high surcharges. It offers simple, anonymous transactions online, and it's supported by secure digital infrastructure. Um, and just to kind of put it in, into perspective, a $100 investment in Bitcoins exactly seven years ago would be worth more than $75 million today. Holy cow. So just kind of yeah, wrap your mind around that. Um, over 40% of Americans adult... At age 65 and over, own a smartphone. So 40% of Americans 65 and up own a smartphone. More than double the amount since 2013, according to the latest survey from Pew Research Center. Uh, at the same time, more than two-thirds of seniors use the Internet, a 55% increase from 2000. And for the first time, half of seniors have broadband at home. Why it matters, despite these milestones, seniors still report feeling disconnected from the Internet and digital culture. As more aspects of daily life become dependent on technology, particularly healthcare, senior adoption of new technologies will become increasingly important. Roughly one third of older internet users say they have little to no confidence in their ability to use electronic devices to perform online tasks. About half of seniors say they usually need someone else to set up a new electronic device for them or show them how to use it. Aging population. Don't forget the average population of seniors is on the rise in the U.S. Census Bureau projects that the number of 65 plus a year old people will rise from 15% to 22% by 2050. Wow. That's you, Matt. Yeah, thank you. Do you, do you, do you feel like you can embrace great. technology yeah. for yourself? Are you kidding? Do you get someone else to set up your technology? No. To help you with sissies. your technology? Like I just, the IT department here to fix your computer because, well, it's their computer. But yeah, that's no. Uh, that's the only time I need help is do you get when your I'm kids? Using... Do you get your kids to help you with your phone? No. You don't need that? No, okay. not well, yet. But... I do need to. I need him to help me get out of the couch, right, and off the couch because well, our couch is a very deep, 
deep couch. You're the next generation of old people. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, you're hipper than most. I mean, some people would learn from their children how to use technology. And, uh, you know, instead you are teaching them and you're also, you know, playing with their fidget toys as mm-hmm. well. Exactly. By the way, don't don't ever say the word hip yeah. with someone of my generation. Right. Hmm. Or older than my generation because I'm actually very young. You guys hmm. don't get that, but I'm – I'm still under 50. And finally, McDonald's made some major changes to the main ingredients of its McFlurries last year, and nobody noticed. McSeriously? McSeriously. The Golden Archer began phasing out artificial flavors in its vanilla ice cream in the fall of 2016 in an effort to check off another item from its to-do list. Over the past year, McDonald's has been ditching artificial ingredients from some of its menu items. Um, already they've taken artificial preservatives out of the chicken McNuggets, removed the high fructose corn syrup from its buns. Yeah. They've, uh, what, froze, uh, they're swapping out frozen beef patties for fresh beef patties in their quarter pounders. It says uh, the ice cream used in more than 60% of dessert items was already free of artificial colors and preservatives before it made any changes to take out the rest of the untoward ingredients. Well, what else could be in there? Just well, cream that's, and that's, that's my, my thought. Isn't a lot of this bonding agents? Isn't the food just going to fall apart on your plate now because there's nothing holding it together? <sighs> no, it'll just rot on your plate. It'll be held together, but now it'll just... it's not going to stand the, the under-the-seat test. The what? The test where you drop a fry oh, under right. your seat and you find it three years later and it's perfectly oh, preserved. And then you stab yourself on the French fry and you have to go get a tetanus shot? Yes. That's the worst injury you can have. Is the the three year old fry injury? Mm-mm, hey, um, what do you do? Senior moment. Having a senior moment. Okay. Let's let's. Do you have your? Uh, do you have your? I wanted. I wanted to talk okay. some advice for people that are trying to make their marriages better, their relationships better. Right. Anything that we need to focus on. I mean, what what are some keys? Is it good that you fight with yes. your spouse? Yes. Arguing is healthy. Now, you need to know how to fight. Right. But arguing is very – it's a sign that it's an opportunity to create a healthier relationship. This says it means avoiding name-calling and put-downs. Yes. It also means striving to understand your partner instead of trying to score points. The healthiest couples have a healthy dose of, of arguments. Being, never having an argument does not mean you're healthy. It doesn't. What about walking – like in in, the, in a verbal way, kind of walking your spouse into a corner and then using her own words against her. Well, that would be a death sentence. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll try we to avoid would suggest that you don't do that. Um, this one says you like yourself and your partner. See, that's a great sign that you're in a healthy relationship. Because so, if you should like it, that's one of the signs that that helps you understand and let you know that you have found somebody is how you feel about yourself when you're with them. So it says you recognize that neither of you is perfect and you accept the value of each other for who you are right now, not who you may become. Yeah. That's a great sign. Should you try to change your partner? No. 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 I mean, by the way, they should try to change themselves, right? They've got to to improve, Mm -hmm. but I shouldn't be the one trying to change them. That will never work. We've all tried that. Hmm. I mean, everyone's tried to change somebody. It doesn't work. You try to change me every day. Yeah. But, I mean, that's for your good. That's so you don't die. You make decisions jointly. Yes. Now, what happens if the other makes a decision without you? Then you take a finger off. And then... (laughs) Just one finger, 
for a decision. Usually, I found you need you rarely need to go more than two fingers before the person figures out we got to do this together. Now, what if the partner takes a course of action because you want to present a unified front to the kids because you know it's yeah. us versus them? Um, you go with it even though you don't really think it's the right course of action. Then you take them aside later and you say, look, I backed you up there, but let me get real. I didn't like that. This is not how I would have handled it. Can we talk about that in the future so I don't have to be surprised? Hmm. And then You can't use it later to no. get something like no. you owe me? See, this is why no. your wife keeps calling my office. <laughs> now I know why – she keeps looking for free advice and help. I have to get an advantage somewhere. No, it's not. There is no advantage in love. It's just love. Love Wrong. is the advantage. Hmm. By the way, that's Donald Trump who had his hand slapped away. <laughs> Wrong. By his wife. You're right? I've, I've seen other pictures. They're holding hands. They're holding hands. Everything's now. fine. He was now. reaching out to try to hold her hand as facts. they were walking, and she slapped his hand away. Yeah. Quite vigorously, I might yeah. add. She just a lot of, and then me. that's now gone viral. Yeah, and it looks like they're fighting. And that came after or before he held on to the glowing orb of. Well, maybe that was it. That maybe was. he still had orb glow on his hand. And I still she think didn't it was want the, to touch it. I think it was the hand slap game. Yeah, you you thought it was back to the. It's a tough game to win. By the, the way, is that that bloody knuckles game that you play as a kid, where you try to hit each no. other's knuckles? That's fun. No. We used to put our fingers in the hockey goal on our table hockey set, and the other person would knock the puck. It was called Bloody Knuckles. Wow. That sounds violent. Where were your parents? Uh, Obviously not there. (laughs) (laughs) Unsupervised. Very dangerous. Oh, anyway, you made it, and that's great. Is that why you have arthritis now? Pretty much. Okay. Well, good. Well, we've got an expert here that can help us with any uh, ailments that we might have. Dr. Ron Hager will be joining us. We call him the health evangelist. Today he's going to be uh, helping us understand really what happens with fad diets. Are they all they're cracked up to be? And we're going to run by him one of our favorite diets, the bacon diet, because there's no way this can be bad. A guy lost 20 pounds doing it. Stick with us. We'll be talking diets, fad diets up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer. Oh, that's the best music ever because you know who's in who's in the studio, Dr. Ron Hager, our health evangelist. He will remove doom from your life. He will bring health back. And uh, how does he do it? He's an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at BYU. And his expertise is chronic disease prevention. He's the preventer, we call him. Or, yeah, the death preventer. The death preventer. Used to be. Yeah. yeah. And now the health evangelist. The health evangelist. I like that better. I do too. And um, today you're going to be taking on fad diets. We told a story yesterday about a, a uh, kind of a fitness guru that lost 20 pounds by eating two pounds of bacon every day. Yeah. So really all you need to do apparently, Dr. Ron, is eat a bunch of bacon and health just – you just lose weight. You just get that – kind of that shimmer on your skin 
It can't be a bad thing eating that much bacon, can it? No, I don't see. There are, we've talked about it on the show. There's nitrates, nitrites. There's all these things in this bacon, right, that could kill you. Yeah, it's a highly processed food. Yeah. But carcinogens. But but it can't help you lose weight. Yeah. So, well, there's there's a couple things going on here. I mean, yes, uh, eating a lot of uh, bacon could actually promote weight loss. There uh, are studies, um, not necessarily on on only bacon, uh, but research has shown and, and physiologists know that um, your body uh, primarily uses glucose for energy. Right. But if uh, if you're low on carbohydrate, um, your insulin levels go down and uh, your fat stores become more mobile. In other words, uh, your liver um, starts to produce energy in the form of ketones uh, from fat. Hmm. And ketones can also be uh, used as energy, uh, even by the central nervous system, by the brain. I've heard you know, people say, oh, no, glucose is the only thing you know, your brain can use for energy. Um, but there's even some really um, interesting Alzheimer's and dementia-type research going on right now to show that um, getting a person into a state of ketosis, either nutritional ketosis, which would occur from eating only bacon. Because it's the fat, right? Yeah, or maybe even uh, uh, a variation of uh, ketosis related to fasting. And I've talked about that on the show before where, you know, people can be encouraged to fast for at least 12 hours a day and not eat at least three hours before they go to bed. You know, and and that that three hours would be included in the 12. You know, so you, you don't eat for three hours, you sleep for eight, you're already up to 11, maybe wait an hour before you eat in the morning. Be careful about the things that you eat because you don't want you don't want to flood your system with glucose um, because that that causes insulin to go up hmm. and and that facilitates storage of fat and conversion of glucose into fat whereas if you're low in glucose uh, your body needs another energy source and so it it begins to convert fat into these ketones and that they, they can actually be used by the central nervous system well as well and they've been shown to uh, in some research to actually uh, decrease uh, symptoms of Alzheimer's, dementia, really? co- cognitive decline, and those kinds of things. So, you know, there, there is there is some value to this. Now, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not anti-bacon. Well, uh, but who is? Yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, so like you said, uh, I, I think you know, for a person to want to lose weight uh, by way of a ketogenic diet, uh, there are probably some other uh, healthy fats. You know. Uh, in some of the Alzheimer's research, they use coconut oil, a, yeah. a, a, a medium-chain triglyceride, in order to promote this state of nutritional ketosis. Um, and, you know, coconut oil, you know, is a lot like um, a natural oil. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and lard, you know, uh, saturated fat is also, you know, can, can be very natural. Right. Uh, you know, coconut oil is a saturated fat. Uh, the, the fat in bacon is only partially saturated. Some of it is unsaturated. Um, but, you know, so, yes, can, can a person, you know, lose weight by eating two pounds of bacon a day? Yeah. In, sure. in, in, in fact, vegans probably have to be more careful about approaching their diet to make sure that they're getting all the things that they need than somebody who just eats meat. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So, in other words, um, y- you would actually be more likely uh, to become deficient in some things. Uh, Just as a vegetarian well, or, 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 a or as a vegan, a strict yeah. vegan, yeah. than you would 
you know, as a, I guess, a strict carnivore. <laughs> um, it's, but, 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 but the idea here, Matt, is that it, you know, you, you mentioned this, this word fad diets. Yeah. I mean, fad kind of implies something, right? Right. That it kind come, of comes and go. goes. Now, now this, this ketogenic approach to, to weight loss is not new. I mean, it's, it, it started, you know, with the Atkins diet in the 70s, and then it, it gained a resurgence with the second book that Dr. Atkins published in uh, the mid or late 80s. Um, and, you know, so it's been around a long time. Yeah. So, you know, let me ask you this. Given, given everything that's out there, uh, whether we're talking about, you know, low-carb, high-protein, high-fat type dietary approaches or low-fat approaches or uh, chemical approaches or medicinal approaches or whatever the approaches are, are we any better off? Right, no. No. So, But, but that's what's interesting is that – so ketogenesis is the principle – and there's a million fads to implement it. Sure. But there's still a way to do it with ketogenesis. Is that what it's called, I guess? Yeah. But, but uh, the, there's a bigger point here where you, you – if you're always hitting a different diet and a different kind of faddish diet, there's probably a principle behind it somewhere that might work. Yeah. But is that the principle you should use to govern health? Well, I, and that's where I tend to disagree you know, with these approaches, um, I'm not. I'm not arguing that a person can't lose 20 pounds eating two pounds of bacon a day. Yeah, or know, even for, grapefruit for, for, for all a day, month, right? Or whatever. Uh, but it, it violates, to me, uh, I guess you know what I consider an important principle, and that's the principle of uh, balance, variety, and moderation. You know, these dietary approaches are are I, I believe preying on, you know, the, the desperation, even the wishful thinking, of of uh, you know an, an overweight and an obese society, right. desperate to lose weight. At you know they'll try anything. Um, there's no there, there's no shortage of of uh, of approaches to lose weight, and um, you know not all of them, but many of them are very profitable. Um, but the question is, if, if there was a single one that actually worked, now I'm, and I'm talking long term, yeah. You know, because that, that's the key, right? I mean, most people have the, 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 the miserable experience of losing the weight, regaining, losing the weight, regaining, losing the weight, regaining it. Uh, the, the key is how do you lose the weight and keep it off? And, and, and it's not with extremes because extremes can't be maintained. Right, right. Right? So, so that, that's the problem. And, 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 and the long-term research shows that uh, these low-carb, uh, high-fat, high-protein diets or moderate-protein diets – uh, are are successful only in the short term. Yeah, and and so then a person can say, well, that's all right. I'll just recycle. You know, I'll just lose gain, lose gain. And there may, may maybe there's even some value to that. I'm not saying there's not, but but to me, uh, it, it, you know, to say, look, I'm just going to eat bacon because I know that will help <laughs> me lose weight. I know how to cook that. I mean, yeah. common sense tells you that that's just not normal. I mean, right. there, there was a time in this country and in this world when where you know o- obesity was not the norm. And it wasn't because everybody was eating bacon, right. you know. Right. So, so we have to use common sense, and we have to approach this carefully. Now, um, you know, not all fats are the same. Some fats are healthy. Some fats are very unhealthy. Trans fat, for example, is extremely unhealthy. Um, not all carbohydrates are the same either, but right. they tend to all be lumped together. I mean, a banana raises your your blood glucose level much more than a piece of broccoli. So one approach that I like to encourage people to use is to look at either the glycemic index or the glycemic load. Hmm. Uh, glycemic load is just a variation of the 
glycemic index, where glycemic index uh, uh, accounts for the blood glucose raising potential of certain foods based on a, uh, a an equal amount of carbohydrate in the food. The glycemic load actually does it more on a portion size, you know, what, what a person would eat. And so glycemic load is probably more accurate. But uh, eating foods that are low in glycemic load helps keep that insulin level down. I mean, almost always, in, in almost every study I've looked at, uh, insulin is high in in the presence of fat storage, in, in cases of obesity and overweight and weight gain. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's due to... Uh, uh, maybe some injury to the brain or something like that that's preventing certain uh, hormones from working properly. I mean, it, insulin's a hormone. Leptin's a hormone. Uh, and, you know, there are cases of people who, you know, they can't control their appetite. They can't uh, keep their insulin levels regulated. Uh, you know, so so the idea is, you know, you know, is a banana a bad thing? Not necessarily, but is a, is a piece of broccoli going to keep your uh, insulin level lower mm. and therefore, uh, you know, lead to more production of ketones, perhaps. I mean, you could eat a salad. There's nothing wrong with that. You could even throw some chicken on the salad, yeah. you know, uh, a little protein or maybe even some other high fat meat. Put some pepperoni on it if you want to and then put some oil and vinegar on it instead of ranch dressing yeah. because ranch dressing is loaded with sugar. Right. And which right. is why we love it. Yeah. So, so one of the one of the things I don't like about the, the idea of, of the you know the, the 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 bacon approach or the or the the, the nutritional uh, ketogenesis or or uh, or, or whatever, fad diet. Yeah, whatever you want to call it is is that they tend to eliminate almost an, eliminate entire macronutrient categories. You know, by saying, look, you know, you, you need to get almost zero carbs. I mean, by saying zero carbs, you're saying. Uh, no salad, no no broccoli, no cucumber. Interesting. I mean, yeah. that, I mean that that's not going to work. No, there there are, there are definitely health benefits to eating. But uh, isn't the goal plant plant based foods? It seems like the goal that makes the fad diet such a big, a, a, an excellent choice is that what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go drop that thirty pounds using this fad trick, and then once I'm down thirty, then I'm just going to eat healthy. Yeah, but in in reality, is I'd invest all the same time and money in just learning to eat healthy. Because so medically, I've had to go on a liquid diet and a low fat diet over the last two three weeks. Right. And but what's interesting is so I have to keep figuring out what I can eat now. Yeah. But what's amazing is once I figure out what I can eat as a healthy alternative, I now know I can go back to that for breakfast forever. But but you also know, too, Matt, that the environment we live in is not very conducive to healthy eating. No. So people do these fad diets, and then they you know make themselves a promise that they're going to be different when they're off the diet. And, right. and going on a diet sort of implies at some point you're going to be off the diet. Yeah. What do you do then? Well, well, you still what, don't have the skills well, well, to be off the diet. Right. Or, 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 the, or the environment. Right. Yeah. The you know, culture, to, right. Or the culture to support. Right. Healthy eating, so it, it's a real dilemma. It's it's a real problem, and it, so you say, well, you know, what has happened over the years that has, uh, you know, created the obesity epidemic? I mean, two thirds of Americans or more are overweight or obese, and it didn't used to be that way. Um, and and our diet, our, our environment has changed. Our 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 dietary environment has changed. Our physical activity environment has changed. Um, and in terms of our our dietary environment. Uh, you know, we have more processed, more refined, uh, more manufactured, if you want to call it that, foods than ever before. Mm. Um, and, you know, we eat more than we ever used to either. I mean, total total calories are up. 
uh, you know, that, that, that's actually been documented. But of those increase in total calories, the main culprit is, is refined foods. Yeah. And, and a lot of that is refined grains, including some refined oils, but refined grains, which, which means, uh, you know, a, a low-quality carbohydrate, which has the potential to facilitate storing fat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, let, me, let, me, let me just tell you something here real quick. Uh, from 1977 to 2002, pizza consumption is up 413% in children. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's some good things about pizza. Uh, pizza is incredible. But the, but the crust is a refined, uh, you know, bread or grain or carbohydrate Sugar product. Ball. Yeah. Um, and, and at the same time, vegetable consumption is down 42%. You know, and and there's there's nothing wrong with vegetables. You know, maybe people need to be a little more careful with fruits because they're very high in sugar. Like I said, a, a banana is much higher in glycemic load than a piece of broccoli. Yeah, right. You know, so you you do have to be careful about the things you eat. Um, vegetables, for example, um, you know, only only twenty three percent of Americans eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. Okay, mm. uh, and half of all the vegetables that are eaten are frozen potatoes, fresh potatoes, potato chips, and iceberg lettuce. You know, oh, so, yeah. so the thousand vegetables that exist, we're down to two. Right. So potatoes go, yeah, and lettuce. Right. So go back to this principle I mentioned, balance, variety, and moderation. Yeah. It, it's, not, it, it, it's non-existent in the human lifestyle. Yeah. There's no fad there, though. We'll come back more with Dr. Ron Hager, our health evangelist. When we come back, we're taking on fad diets, giving you the principles you need to live a healthier life. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. That's the music of our health evangelist. Dr. Ron Hager is back. Ron is an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences at BYU, and he's uh, walking us through... We proposed a fad diet we heard where you eat two pounds of bacon a day. You lose 20 pounds over a month, a month and yeah. 20 years of your lifespan. <laughs> but, hey, it's worth it. So, um, Ron, you're teaching us really the principle should be balance, variety, moderation. In, in, incorporate that instead of just the latest and greatest diet. Well, uh, yeah. I mean almost all the diets that you hear about are about something extreme. You know, like get rid of all your carbohydrates right. or get rid of all your fat. Uh, you know, they, they, they talk about eliminating, like I said, almost entire macronutrient categories. And, you know, I just don't think that's the way God ever intended people to eat. Right. Um, now, there, there is some truth. You look at uh, some, um, some culture, some even ethnic groups around the world, especially, uh, you know, like uh, aboriginal or indigenous populations um, – and they have, uh, you know, very high protein, high fat diets, and very low carbohydrate diets. And obesity is pretty much non-existent. And so are many of the chronic diseases that afflict, you know, Western societies. Yeah. Um, but but those, those people who are eating that way also aren't sitting at desks no, all, all day they're long. Running around, they're, walking. They're, they're not watching TV all day long. They're not sitting in cars or buses all day long. Uh, you know, it. it what, what what they've done is they've. Uh, you know, whether you want to call it evolution or whatever you want to call it, uh, they have come to a way uh, that works for them regarding their entire environment. Uh, Kelly Brownell, a researcher um, from Yale University, has coined the phrase or coined the term toxic environment. He says that our our society is a toxic environment where 
you know, food choices uh, are through the roof. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you, you think back 100 – if you could bring somebody from 100 years ago or, or even 200 years ago forward in time to today and you walk them into, you know, one of these like Walmart grocery stores or something, it would blow their mind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, the, the amount of food choices, the abundance of food, the palatability of food, the, the, how cheap, how inexpensive food is, is, is like no other time in history. And most of it is is manufactured. Most of it's in a box, a bag, a can, a jar, a bottle. Uh, it's refined. It's processed in some way, um, and and that's that that's different than the way we used to eat. And so he also talks about how um, you know overconsumption is almost inevitable, and we've yeah. we, we've seen that. That's been demonstrated. Serving sizes, yeah, yeah. And, serving yeah. sizes are up compared to the 1960s and 70s. Are our our total calorie per capita consumption is is you know 700 calories more than it used to be per day our activity levels are down and that's part of the toxic environment too yeah you know everything around us is geared to making our life one of ease and and uh, and comfort uh you know and and the path of least resistance you know doesn't always lead to a place you want to be you know you, you should have some opposition. You should have some resistance, yeah, some, some things you stress, want to overcome, yeah. some, you know, even, even of a physical nature. Yeah. You, know, you need that. And so we do have a toxic environment that we're living in. So yes, our environment has changed. And, 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 and I go back to the, the idea that, you know, you know, can you lose weight on a fad diet? Yeah, sure. You know, there are ways to do that. But, but the, the long-term results have been very disappointing overall. In the end, we have about a minute. What's the, what's the answer? So what would you suggest instead of just immediately jumping to the diet to lose the weight, do what? Well, you know, re- research shows that, you know, when you compare like a, a group of people on a low-fat diet to a group of people on a low-carb, high-fat diet, oftentimes the low-carb, high-fat group wins out. Um, I, I would say, you know, it's not so much about uh, taking issue with qu- with uh, quantity yeah. as much, uh, you know, counting calories and stuff. I mean, maybe for a few people, you know, they can kind of get into that. But for others, it's just a grind and a, a big turnoff. Uh, I, I would say, say look, look for quality. Okay. Make everything in your life about quality. Just forget about the quantity. Okay. And, and there's nothing wrong with some fat, even some saturated fat in your diet. Uh, but there are different kinds of fats. Yeah, there are different kinds of carbohydrates. There are different kinds of proteins. And the more natural or whole food can be when you eat it, probably the better it's going to be for you. You know, you can take an olive and you can smash it and you can get the oil out of it. You can't do that with rapeseed or with uh, uh, corn, hmm. right? You actually have to take it through this intensive process. To get so, 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 so it's a refined oil. Yeah. So st- what I'm saying is stick, stick with the kinds of things that can be eaten in their natural form. Yeah. And and I, th- and I think you're going to be okay. You're going to be a lot better off. Now, bacon, you know, is not – is, is, is highly processed meat. If but you, if, if you, you squeeze it, it, you can get You can get oil, oil out of it. it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and, there's, and, and there's nothing wrong with a little saturated fat, like I said, right. in your diet. So qu- uh, quality. But, focus but on get, quality, even, even get a – you can still have a little bacon, but sure. have quality in the rest of your life as well and quality bacon. Right. Wrap your broccoli – your steamed broccoli oh, and bacon. Now that would be good. And then just like eat a very that. low fat bacon. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Ron Hager's his name. He's the health evangelist, keeping us all sane and alive. Stick with us. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. Through the streets, and I realize that everything shines in a different way. And I smell the sea. Welcome to her house. 
She is looking up, Bows. She is here to break down things you Bows in the house. McKenna's here with us. Uh, she likes to bring us little mind benders, little ways of making us think differently. And today we're talking surgery. Yeah. McKenna, welcome. It's good to be here. So uh, what do you think? What's the what's the what's the bender? So, you know, normally surgery, surgery people have it, you know, you it, gotta... it happens. And one of those common nightmares associated with it is what would happen if I'm awake for my surgery? But more and more people are actively choosing to stay awake through surgery. Why? Why? There's a lot of different reasons. Um, for some people, it's the fact that uh, local anesthesia as opposed to general yeah. is cheaper. Okay. That so there's makes a sense. financial aspect. It is safer. Um, there are complications that can arise from yeah. being put all the way under. And some people just think it's sort of interesting and want to watch. But you – okay. Can you can you be awake for any surgery? Um, right I mean, now – I know the, in brain surgeries, I think you are awake. Yeah. Um, they don't put you under for that. Most commonly right now, the people who stay awake are people opt, uh, who are t- having orthopedic surgeries. That's the most common. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's a growing trend just about – everywhere. I think it really depends on the person. You know, if you can stomach it, you can probably be awake for more, but if it's going to freak you out too much to where you're going to start freaking out, won't not a good idea. Doesn't something idea. happen with your mind though? Like if you're watching it, isn't there something psychological going on where maybe you think you're feeling the pain when you're actually not? Possibly. Well, that's I why they play, that's Yeah, that's why they play like Willie Nelson. <laughs> while you're you know, you're there. You're um, just, they try to like lull you to sleep. But that's I. That's I think one of the reasons. You know, it definitely is going to be a person by person case as to whether or not you should do it. Because well, if you've had stitches and you were awake and you couldn't feel it, but you could feel the tugging and the pulling, I don't know that I'd want. Like, let's say you're having some surgery, internal surgery in your gut. Well, that's going to be a much heavier local anesthetic. I know, but we, you'll still feel pressures and tugs and snugs and pulls and smells and sounds. Yeah, there's a lot of... A lot of surgery is pretty... Yucky. Yucky. Yeah. Ugh. It's... Okay, people so are you, doing this. You have all those issues that you know we think of immediately with the, that sounds uncomfortable, things mm-hmm. like that. But that's not even what the biggest problem they've run into with this is. What is it? Doctors have no idea how to behave when their patients are awake. You know, there's either this really uncomfortable silence because like, do, well, do yeah. I talk to them? And that makes people uncomfortable. Or, you know, when you're under, the doctors are like, <laughs> they make a little tiny mistake. That's not a big deal. But yeah. They might say, oops. Oh, you geez. don't say, oops. <laughs> we got a bleeder. What is that? <laughs> when... We got a bleeder, Larry. <laughs> and that's the problem is that they just, that's that, crazy. you know, sort of. Yeah, that would be bad. They haven't trained doctors how to behave in those situations, and it's causing some interesting situations where a doctor going, what are you doing? You know, when the other Gladys, surgeon. So we told you not to eat last night. You, you. Wouldn't, you wouldn't want to be awake during this. <laughs> I, I, I just had a, a – what's it called? Um, an endoscopy of my stomach. Yes. Oh, fun. And it was the greatest 20 minutes of my life. I wouldn't want to see that either. It was beautiful. But so that was, I mean, I get that when they got to put you out because you don't want to be awake while they're shoving something down your throat. Well, you'd be gagging all over the place. But be bad. it was beautiful. And I woke up happy and my wife was there and she looked like an angel. And I thought I had died and gone to heaven. 
It seems like a very granola thing to want to be awake during this type of thing. But then, you know, it's it's kind of granola to not even go to a hospital at all. Yeah. I it almost feels more like like why would you want to have a um a what's it called have no meds for birth, for childbirth. I mean, go natural. Like I, you know, there's just sometimes you just need drugs and there's sometimes you need to be asleep. Yeah. It's it I think it just really comes down to what's going to make the situation more comfortable for you. I think yeah. some people feel like they have more control yeah. if they're awake True. and are going to be a lot less nervous. Mm-hmm. And it and I mean and it might yeah, it, if but if this is coming down to finances, that's sad. That is sad. Um, it, I would love to live in a world where everybody can just afford the medical yeah. things. Just the mere health of it all. You shouldn't go under the knife and under anesthesia unless you need it. I mean, it's a serious deal. It really is. Well done, McKenna. Mindbender. Hey, I don't think we ever got your answer for that question, who is your James Bond? You asked me that question, but you never answered. I think Sean Connery. Hmm. And I love that. I love that Bond when Connery went and was hunting for a sub. And he found the sub. Like a Subway sandwich? No, he found um, a submarine from the Russian fleet, and he was a Russian submarine captain. Um, that was my favorite Bond. Actually, I'm pretty sure that was Wrong. That, that wasn't a Bond. That was just Hunt for Red October. Yes. One of the greatest shows ever, though. I mean, it's hard to find a submarine. Know what I mean? Yeah, you don't even care. Just why don't you go to your... Go, go watch your show. Go get, go talk about it on your show. Was that Screen was that like equivalent to saying like, go take a walk, go fly a kite? Yeah. Hmm. Go fly a kite. Hey, a 26 year old man disguised as senior a senior citizen robs two banks. Florida man in his 20s is now facing charges after authorities said he disguised himself as a senior citizen and robbed two banks. Abraham uh, Mann of Hollywood allegedly held up two banks one week apart in South Florida, bagging some $50,000 in cash. First time cops alleged that he uh, stole 10000 from a bank where the FBI said he was wearing an old man disguise when he pulled out a gun and demanded cash. Agents believe he spent most of the money the following day at a resort at Holly, in Hollywood. Then he, uh, this past Tuesday, the FBI says he struck again when he held up a bank in Boca Raton and allegedly told the teller, My grandson is sick. I need 40000 now. Hurry up. He's going to die. Well, they snuck a tracking device in the bag, and uh, that led investigators to the house where he was renting a room. The, ho- the owner of the Hollywood home where Mon was uh, living told reporters that the tenant had recently been fired from his job as a loan officer for being constantly late to work. So I'm a little disappointed because it, the, the story didn't answer the most important question to me. Which was? Is his grandson going to be okay? Yeah, I think that was all a ruse. That was not. That was a lie. What? He'll be fine, though. Okay. Yeah. It thank was you. Just, that's it all was I a, wanted to it know. It was a 24-hour bug. Just tell me if he's going to be okay. He's and I'm, fine. Okay, thank you. He's fine. Hey, uh, let's get to our hero story of the day. Yo, you know we always like to leave you with a little hope, a little excitement. Our hero of the day is a transit worker that saved two female cops as a suspect attacked them and tried to steal their guns. The heroic moment a transit worker jumped into the to help two female police officers, um, apparently during the middle of an attack, 
was caught on surveillance footage. Tampa Bay police officers were dispatched to the bus station after Charles Key allegedly headbutted a security officer who asked him to leave since he was in violation of a year-long trespassing order. The two female officers who responded were in the process of trying to apprehend Key and struggled to handcuff him. The video of the incident shows the man punching one of the officers in the face as he also tried to grab her gun. Another man wearing a white T-shirt uh, can be seen stepping in to help the two female officers before they, uh, before others joined in to assist. The man was later identified as Hillsborough Area Regional Transit uh, Transit Supervisor Tim Martin. He's now being applauded uh, for his by the police for his heroism. If it hadn't been for him, it couldn't it could have gotten really ugly. They could have had the gun and maybe even harmed more people. So. Congratulations to you, Tim Martin. You are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. It's pretty simple to be a hero. Sometimes you just have to show up to be there at the right time. Sometimes you have to, you know, be brave like Tim was. Other times you just need to have a listening ear, be present, be willing to help serve, lift somebody that needs help. All of us could do better at being heroes, and we should be celebrating the heroes in our lives. So, That's why we do the show, to give you that hope. Go be the hero to somebody. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more ideas, more information to live healthier lives. Until then, make it a great one. We'll talk tomorrow.